Hi, everybody. Welcome to Artifice episode 153. This is an exciting one because it is the first time that I have had a repeat guest. So here we are in season mm, seven of the podcast. Listen, I've been finishing up recording season eight and starting to schedule season nine, and it's all feeling like, which one am I on? Um, but this that you're hearing right now is season seven. I've been doing this podcast since 2019. And I just had this thought, you know, my creative friends who I wanted to talk to when I started this podcast, many of them have been doing so many new things. And I just think I've got to talk to this person again and I've got to record it. So um, you'll be seeing a few more of these coming up. I just recorded another one. Um, but today's episode is Ryan Nielsen Returns. And Ryan's episode is one of the most listened to episodes of Artifice of all time. And it checks out because Ryan is brilliant and has so many you know, beautiful philosophies about art to share. He does a lot of writing and a lot of thinking. We're cut from the same cloth in that way, I think. And he has just been writing. Um, we're, we're friends on Facebook and he writes all these things. And I, I just thought I've got to talk with him about some of these things. And I think my artifice listeners need to hear it. Um, before I read you Ryan's updated bio, um, I wanted to say before I forget, um, his first episode is episode number 39. So um, if you love this episode, feel free to go back and listen to that. Um, and then I wanted to also just say in this conversation, you know, I talk about this all the time, but the way that I that I tend to do the podcast is I end up recording each episode about six months before it comes out. And because of my knee injury, it's more like nine months this time because I, I just like delayed um, a couple of months and then season eight will be like a bit shorter than, than usual. And it's so interesting for me when I go back and re-listen to the episodes and kind of take notes, um, you know, when I'm editing, so usually about two weeks before they're coming out, um, to hear a conversation that happened, you know, about nine months ago. And if you had asked me, you know, a few weeks ago, Hey, Emily, what did you talk about when you interviewed Ryan last summer? I would have been like, I don't know, art stuff. Can't remember anything too specific, but listening back, we talked about so many things that I have been writing about since then. Um, maybe some like little, you know, inception from this interview and, or I just, you know, was talking with Ryan about ideas that were kind of just at the beginning of kind of percolating in my mind, um, probably a bit of a combination of both of those things. But this, in this conversation, we talk about so many things that are sort of right at the crux of what I'm thinking about lately as an artist and where I think I'm kind of headed in my own creative journey and how I'm thinking about what I'm doing next. And there are even some kind of like little spoilers for what I'm working on now. Um, and I am working on something now. It's just, it's going to maybe be one of those projects that takes a couple of years. Um, but, uh, but I feel great about it. And, and, uh, yeah, there are teasers in here and, I would love it as always. If you listen, just drop me a line. I know I've said this um, before, but you know, I'll, I'll look on SoundCloud or Spotify or whatever, and I can see plays on the episodes, dozens, sometimes hundreds. Um, 
And I just think, man, I do not know who those listeners are. I know a very small handful of people who are listening, but if you are listening, I would really love to know. And I would especially love to know, like, what brings you to the podcast? I'd love to know what you like, what you want to hear more of as I'm planning the next season. I think to some extent, I'll just kind of always follow my passion and my interests, but it would definitely maybe motivate me to look in kind of new artistic corners if, uh, if I knew it was something that you were looking for in particular. So let me know. And yeah, I think that's it. I'd love to hear from you. Um, happy first return guest episode. It's kind of like a, a fun thing. And I think that's all. I think that's all I want to say. Okay, here is Ryan's updated bio. Dr. Ryan Nielsen is a trumpet artist truly at home in both classical music and jazz. A devoted teacher and clinician, he has been a consultant for professionals and students alike from Los Angeles to London to Turkey. His popular YouTube channel, Ryan's Trumpet, has thousands of subscribers from around the globe. He has performed and recorded with the Kobe Watkins Group Tet, Ra Kalam Bob Moses, Delfeo Marsalis, and the Summit Brass to international acclaim. His forthcoming book, The Classroom Guide to Jazz Improvisation, written with co-author John McNeil, Professor Emeritus, New England Conservatory of Music, will be released by Oxford University Press in early 2024. Nielsen is a lotus trumpet artist. Um, oh, I thought there was like another paragraph, but this is just a paragraph that Ryan wrote to me in our email. Um, so there it is. And some of those things that are in this little paragraph weren't happening last time we had Ryan on. So it's great. Um, it's great to talk about pedagogy with Ryan and art philosophy and kind of, you know, our kind of human individual evolution. There's nothing more exciting to me lately, I think. Um, Gosh, I think that's it. Uh, so happy Tuesday if you're listening on the day this is released and happy whatever day if you're not. Um, so yeah, without further ado, please enjoy Ryan Nielsen Returns. Here comes. Great art almost feels like magic. It opens our minds to brand new ideas and teaches us to see ourselves and our world more clearly. Of course, behind all great art, there are artists. And I think that's where the real magic happens. As we go beneath the art itself to explore how artists do what they do, we see glimpses of the sorts of creativity and resilience that lead to the art that moves our world. And maybe we can learn to borrow some of that magic for our own thinking. That's the goal here. And now that we're on the same page, let's dive in. I'm Emily Merrill, and this is Artifice. Okay. Got it? Got enough volume in there? I think so. Okay, I like to keep it pretty low, but every once get... in a while I have like a an actor in here who's like, I'd like to hear a little bit more of myself, please. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> it's so funny. It's been one of the That's... funniest things. I would I've... think only trumpet players would say things like that, but it turns out there are sopranos, violinists, and actors in the world, Indeed. too. Indeed, and occasional, like, Like for an in-depth interview like this, that I is think. so much. Um, yeah, actually, I want to kind of talk about that with you too. But um, I'm gonna try and copy the. Yeah, I like it like this because then I can sit like yeah, totally right? sideways. But yeah, I think you have it right. I always put I always put the stand like next to me instead of like I 
put the leg of it like under the chair. How many trumpet players does it take? But the beauty of the boom stand is it can just move with you. It can do whatever you want it to do. Um, I might get up occasionally just to like wake the computer up so I can continue to see the waveform, but you can just keep talking. Got it? I think so. Boom. I'm ready. Yeah. Okay. Comfy. So good. I'm glad. And you can (laughs) just, I want you to be comfy. So just any time you want to adjust, just pick up that boom stand and just move it with you. Okay. Um, anyway, but I was talking to my friend, Zach, who's based in Denver and he runs, um, he runs, he teaches at like a prep school, like kind of a music prep school. And he was telling me like, he cares a lot about like other people's kids, which he calls like OPKs. (laughs) <laughs> and he was like, he was OPKs. talking about how like, he's like really spends a lot of time thinking about o- his OPKs. And I was like, that's so relatable. Yeah. Anyway. So I don't have kids, but I, I kind of have other people's kids. Yeah. That's, that was a long and way of saying that's that. That's a big, that's a heavy gig too. Yeah. That's taking under, care of other people's kids. Oh, and especially through the pandemic, I think actually yeah. the last few years as a teacher have been, um, different, different and a challenge to to well, find that balance between empathizing like how what would it be like to be that age looking at this stuff going down I don't know and to not have well I don't know if I'd said this to me. you before cuz one of you know I I'm like again chaos brain the listeners know they can handle it <laughs> <laughs> if they've been listening all this time they They're know in. what to expect <laughs> But um, one of the things that I li- always like, like he- hearing you or seeing you write about teaching, because I feel like we think about teaching in similar ways. But for me, like m- my parents weren't trustworthy adults in my life. And my teachers and especially my music teachers were like the closest thing that I had to parents. Hmm. And so I always think as a teacher, like I-, I try to approach it like I like as if I were the only trustworthy adult in the student's life you know I I try to take that like pretty seriously you know with boundaries but but in terms of like just how I approach it it definitely comes from a place of like what if I'm like the best that you have wow but I feel like you think like that in a lot of ways too like whether or not you're thinking of it like that like you approach teaching from a similar like heartful and mindful space well that's very kind of you I I've never thought of it in those terms. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Like that's inviting me into reconsidering my role that way. Yeah. Um, I do. I definitely feel like it's an interesting challenge, especially I think maybe for us as music teachers, because we have all these private students. Yeah. The relationship who, is just different. It's just different. And they will be with us not for a colleagues. semester, but for years. And then they will be our colleagues. Absolutely. And that's not true <clears> for like other professions in the same way. Like the people, you know, for Andrew, like my husband, his professors in, in school, they remain professors. You know, there's no, Mm -hmm. it's very unlikely that their students will become their colleagues, but for, for any art professionals and maybe music in particular, because it's so collaborative, like your students are going to be on the bandstand with you like shortly, probably, hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, Yeah. that's, yeah, that is true. Well, I wanted to say in starting before we like dig in too far. So this is the first time I've had a repeat guest. I was going to say customer because <laughs> it's Monday morning. Yes. Chaos um, brain strikes yes, again. Chaos brain strikes again. Um, 
but so I wanted to, I wanted to kind of preface the, the interview or the conversation with like two ideas. One being, this is the first time I'm doing this and I suspect it will happen more, but, um, I just have been reading all these things you're writing and you're just like, there's so many things that I'm just like, I can't write a comment on this. Like I'm thinking about so many of the same things and it just feels like there should be a conversation. Mm, I can't, I can't wait to talk about it actually. Great. great. I I have notes. They're organized into sections. I've thought about this as much as I possibly could have in the last week. Wow. Um, And then the other thing I wanted to say is um, that, you, we talked about this a tiny bit, but I had written an essay a couple of months ago, maybe about medium and that like, I've been going through my own kind of like art thing recently and I'm still not exactly sure like what it is or what I'm doing. I've been too busy to like really have time to think about it, but my album release show's over and wedding season is kind of over. Yes. I just (laughs) booked two. I had no gigs in November and then I just booked two weddings in November. So, but I, I'm still letting myself feel like wedding season is over. There's two weddings in November, but they're back to back one weekend. Anyway, all this to say a lot of the things that you've been writing about, like are related to the same kind of thing I'm thinking of about like, what is my medium? Like, I'm not sure it's music. It might be ideas. Mm. It might be people. It might be like, I don't know, but I feel like, you know, maybe in different words, but a lot of the things you're writing about are similar to that. So maybe if I can just say that as kind of like a, an entry point. To the I remember resonating with that a lot when you wrote that actually, because I mean, that's one of the, the weirdest parts of the pandemic for me is I know a lot of musicians who came into questioning their whole relationship with their art mm. through over the last couple of years. Tell me more. Um, well, I mean, maybe in the, in story form. So we, so I play with the Kobe Watkins group Tet and we, yeah. of course everything got canceled. And then, uh, our first gig, we've been playing at a jazz festival in Lake Chelan, Washington. Um, every year. Cool. And so it was like a reunion thing. We were supposed to play the year before Mm -hmm. it got canceled. So, right. So we hadn't played together in a long time. And after the gig, like when we got to just hang out and talk, it turned out that most of us had driven to that gig wondering (gasps) if our relationship with music was over. Oh, wow. Like I felt it that deeply. I remember talking. Yeah. I remember talking with Holly about my wife about, um, just not knowing if I even was going to be able to keep playing the trumpet and feeling like playing the trumpet, like every pragmatic reason to play kind of disappeared (laughs) in that time period. So it was like, now why am I doing this? And, and feeling deeply the sense for me, the, the sense was, I know I could play the trumpet the way I would like to play it with the sound that I hear, Mm -hmm. but that won't, work. It honestly won't. I just haven't seen. Ryan, I have so many things written on this piece of <laughs> paper this, that are this, exactly we're, this. We're about to go there. Yeah. And actually yeah. I really tried to think, so like over the past several days, I've been reading back over your posts and just writing down notes and thinking about things. Um, 
and writing down like little questions. And then I, this morning, um, I tried to organize it into something that felt like vaguely linear, Mm. but I suspect that it isn't really, it's more like a center point and you know, it's like, so I'll try to stay organized, but don't worry about it. Just talk about whatever you want. So this, so this, but it was just, it was so striking to me Mm. that most of us literally had made that trip going, for me, I'll just speak for me. I, I was going there wondering if the music would come alive again or not. Did it? It did. It was amazing. It It was beautiful. And, and, but even in rehearsal the day of, or before the hit, it was like, I could tell the music sounded good, but I was not not feeling it. It was not coming through me. And so it was, and went, and it was this giant relief when the gig hit and it was like, Oh, yeah. There's still something breathing through us as a collective. I have felt that so many times too, just like a dearth of this like sparkly thing that I think is what, like, in fact, just this morning I went to, I went to renew my cannabis prescription, (laughs) which is something that's like really been helpful to me over the last little while. Um, and I'm allowed to talk about it because it's totally legal because I have a prescription. (laughs) But anyway, the, I I was seeing a new doctor because my other doctor had moved or left her practice or something. And just, just seriously, like an hour and a half ago, this doctor was like, um, asking me like, why did I decide to become a singer? And like the most honest answer is like, I never thought I would become a musician. I always thought I would do something, you know, practical. Mm. I had good grades. I was like a really good student. I could have probably done anything I wanted to do. Um, you know, it wasn't like music was the only thing I was good at. Mm -hmm. And, but I had some of these experiences in my later high school years that were so transcendent that I just kind of thought if this is an option in the world, I can't not do this. Wow. And then, you know, we go through these phases, at least I do. And it sounds like you do where that thing kind of is elusive. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Back sometimes. And and it's interesting too, because I want to. What comes to mind when we, when you say that is like, I think there's, I'm at a place in my own development as an artist where, cause there used to be the thing where it was almost like wanting a hit. Like I want, right. Mm. It was almost like I wanted, I wanted a high yeah, yeah. from the music mm-hmm. and that's what I was chasing probably if I'm being super honest in my twenties and like I was chasing some sort of like a validation high or like a, Mm. or just like the high of like the art thing. I think just like an adrenaline, like, like, like just like, and it's probably part of it was validation. I'll bet there's something to that. I've never asked myself that question. And you're talking specifically about in performance. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, like like I'm going to perform so that I can come away feeling really good. Okay. Like, and if it goes well, I'm going to feel really good. And, but, but now to that at all, (laughs) I I don't relate to that even a little interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to go there. Yeah. So, but, but (laughs) late, but lately as in like over the last five years and especially over the last, two to three years. Yeah. Um, I am not in like the way I've been framing it in my own mind is there's a way to approach art where it's transcendent in the sense that you leave Mm. and there's a way to approach it where it's actually super ordinary and very grounding. Yeah. And you're more the that you're actually more present when it's done. That's the one I'm chasing. That's where me too. That is where I feel like I'm going and trying to understand how to create the conditions for me to continue to move that direction towards ordinariness and presence rather than totally transcendence or 
uh, like peak experiences. Mm. Yeah. The transcendent thing feels very like present and connected to me, but that might Mm. just be because I was raised by narcissists and I didn't feel safe ever, you know? So like in those musical moments where I felt like these other humans are people I trust Mm -hmm. and there's something really beautiful about making something together that feels very safe and it feels very like, it's like a very beautiful, like humans doing a human thing together. Mm, so that's what you mean when you say transcendent. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. helpful for me to understand. Yeah. I never thought about it before. I just thought that everybody, I mean, I would have thought that like, that's kind of what everybody was thinking, but mm. you know, we're learning new things all the time. <laughs> well, and I also, yeah. We, and I also want to be clear. It's not like a hierarchy in my mind either. I know musicians who the way they approach it is, no, they're going to, they're, they are trying to access like an altered state of consciousness mm-hmm. where they are leaving and something comes through them and they don't even know what it is. Mm, and I that to I me, can... I've, I've seen that be stunningly beautiful too. Yeah. So I'm not, it's not a judgment thing. It's just where I'm. It's like, what is the language you're speaking? It's where I'm going. Well, and where I feel like I, I need feel to like you're thinking about this too, but we, I mean, it hasn't been like explicit, but I feel like this idea of like trying to kind of reach an or like a beauty in an ordinary the implications of that are so vast like that's why I've been thinking about medium because it feels like well if I can achieve this while I'm making music I can sometimes find I can sometimes feel that while I'm writing music because I'm accessing like a certain type of empathy in order to write music I'm thinking about other people I'm kind of like assimilating like different conversations that I've had. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel it while I'm teaching. Sometimes I feel it like with like, I've been doing this kind of experiment recently. I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I've certainly written about it a little, but like this past summer with wedding season, I kind of entered the, I entered the season with the intention to try to find as many artful moments as possible in this like hustly, like, you know, it's money making for sure. But I've started doing this new thing where like, I always ask the officiant if like he or she needs a pep talk. Cause like a lot of officiants have never done it before. Right. In this day and age, like a lot of people get certified as like a officiant for their friend, you know, they're like the best man Mm -hmm. or something or the grandparent. Yeah. And so I've been asking them because they're performing, you know, it's public speaking, it's a performance. And most of the time I think that's uncomfortable for people. And you'd be, I am shocked at how frequently people are like, yes, please help me. And then I get to give, like, I get to have this little moment with this like perfect stranger. It's just like one example. I've been kind of experimenting with like other similar things in like these different moments. But then I just think like, well, this isn't music. I mean, I'm getting paid to be here as the band, Yeah. but like having this conversation with this officiant isn't music, but it feels creative to me. Like it also feels like art to like, you know, try to facilitate this conversation with this person and try to help this moment be like as meaningful as it can be. Mm -hmm. Anyway, all I'm saying is the implications of these things are like, they bleed out. They're very porous. I love that. I think, I mean, I certainly... I love the idea of looking for moments like that. Yeah. I feel like that's an important invitation for me to consider. And, and I do, and where I can resonate with what you're saying is in teaching, right? There are moments as a teacher that feel exactly like what you're describing. They feel like art. Yeah. They feel like art. I had this um, amazing experience with a student. I'll just, for the sake of protecting identity, say it happened sometime in the last three years. Okay. 
Um, but um, this student came to me and started, they were asking me about, because there still exists within the academy a pretty strong divide between music of European origin and music from other, mm-hmm. uh, from African or Asian mm-hmm. diasporas. Absolutely. And, and it's still... A problem. It's it's a really big problem that we face. I have some notes on that in here as well. Nice. Um, So, but this student came to me to talk. Like, it was a really interesting experience because I could tell they were like they came in to retake a test or something, right? And so we did that, and then they just like sat there. It's like they knew that it was time (laughs) to have a conversation about something. And so, you know, initially I was a little uncomfortable. I thought, Oh, something's happening. We're going to wait and follow this, this little lead here. And they, they ended up talking about how their experience, um, had been studying European music, uh, primarily on their instrument. And we started to talk about the history of like where that pedagogy comes from and how it, um, how it has its roots in cultural violence. Absolutely. The, pe- the history of the pedagogy, not the music itself. The music itself, of course, is stunningly beautiful and human, and I've spent so much of my life studying yeah. it, and and I love it. Um, but but the pedagogy itself is built on the idea of supremacy. Totally. Right? And it's there literally to reinforce, like to justify colonizing places and, and to feel good about bringing something quote unquote better to a place. Right. right? And I'm, and we were just talking about like, this is where the roots of this really come from. That's just where the conversation went. And they just, they broke down crying in them in a really meaningful way because they realized they, because they also have like heritage in South America and and they had felt like they'd been, I have so many things to say. Yeah. They felt like they had been, pushed away from embracing that part yes. of their heritage yeah. because it was less than in the particular field that they're in, on yeah. the instrument that they study. And it was this amazing healing moment to that. watch them come to, to realize that, um, I just that had... in fact, it didn't have to be that way that right. they could love yeah. Bach and study Bach and they yeah. could also completely embrace the music of their own ancestry and, it was so it was well, one of those moments. That's so weird that you're saying this because I I literally just like in the last couple of months had a really similar conversation with a student who's of Pacific Islander descent mm. and talking about the pedagogy and specifically the vocal pedagogy and the way in which the bel canto method is like you know people have been singing forever like Europeans don't own vocal technique it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous premise. Um, there is, you know, like academia and like science, you know, like physiology that, you know, is kind of coming out of a Eurocentric model just because that's what's been in academia for Mm -hmm. longer. But yeah, we were talking about like, you know, tension and like when you're singing with your Pacific Islander family, do you feel that tension? And the answer is no. And then it's like, well, you own that. Like, that's your voice. You know, you don't need to kind of put all these extra constraints on it. But I'm totally with you and like having very similar conversations because it's it's complicated. Okay, and 
let's now <laughs> go okay. to my notes. I'm excited. Okay, so I want to, and again, we can jump around, but I wanted to start with, I had never heard of this term like teleology. Oh. Um, I, and you had written about it. So for the listener, like, I don't know if, do you have a blog? Do you put your, do you put your essays on a blog? I don't have a blog. You probably should. Cause you write so many nice things <laughs> that I think like I want to refer back to, but anyway, well, do you want to just like say a little bit about like what this word means? Sure. Uh, my introduction to the idea of teleology. So teleology, as I understand it, and you are now getting a philosophy lesson from a musician. Great. Is, <laughs> is uh, essentially like the uh, uh, goal-oriented or progress-oriented experience and or thinking. So yeah. um, the, in uh, and I have encountered the word, like the, the idea of telos, um, or teleology in two settings. One is like in certain, in like Hegelian writing, Hegel writes about the teleology of like the inevitable progress of progress in air quotes for me, uh, yeah. towards like a utopian nation state. So it's, okay. so it's, it's, it's embedded More in holistic or it's something. A, no, it's embedded in like, it's embedded in Western European thought. Okay. It's the idea that we are, that there is progression. Mm. It is happening. It's objectively happening. And, um, and so that's the first place that I stumbled across the use of that term. And then more recently, I've kind of gone down a, a Carl Jung rabbit hole. Yeah. It's um, not a bad one to be in. It's so interesting yeah. to me. I think artists everywhere should just would. Most of the artists I know actually are already operating in that <laughs> frequency tell me, tell anyways. Me um, so anyways, but the idea with in Jungian thought behind telos or teleology is um, the um, that there are forces that are bigger than the individual that are almost pressing the individual mm. to move towards something yeah. that's goal oriented. And I don't, I think that it, the reason that I'm sort of interested in that term is actually because at the very least my application of it, my practice of it in my life has not been healthy or sustainable. Yeah. So it's so, but it's, but it's, it's in the bedrock of Western thought yeah. and culture and philosophy, which is better, 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 more, yeah. more, 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 strive, strive, strive. And you strive. get a second dose of it if you're raised LDS. <laughs> you get I did. Six, I, you get six to 10 additional doses, <laughs> whatever. Well, and that's in, in the way yeah. that it can show up there and in other just the, the idea of like most striving for perfection. Yeah. And, this is what I have yeah. this like, I, I, I have notes about your, your striving essay, which, which was just oh, okay. this week. Um, but okay. So what I wanted to specifically talk about with you is with teleology is like, why isn't it sustainable? Like, why do you think it isn't sustainable? Like for you, for artists, for people. Yeah. And I, I'll just keep it totally rooted in my experience. Okay. There may be people who it brings them alive yeah. and that's, I'm cool with that too. Yeah. yeah. But for me, it's been exhausting too because because for me that sense of telos or direction or goal in that sense is is totally rooted in a sense of lack yeah it's in a, it's it's viewing myself as though um there's stuff i'm missing and I have to go and I need to fill in this gap and I need to fill in this gap. And, oh, I'm weak. Oh, like the, the, yeah. the idea of teleology or goal, even like goal oriented um, practice for me has been unsustainable for that very reason. And I don't 
mean this in like a sort of woo woo, like, uh, whatever, everything is the same. Everything is, uh, like there doesn't need to be work. It's just that what changes for me when I move away from that sense of teleology, I'm replacing the idea of goal driven teleology with an idea of like a vision. Yes. Okay. That's my next, that like for I, myself that where my job is to cultivate the conditions that allow that to occur on its own. Okay. This is written here. What is vision? Like, what do you mean? Like, well, what I, does this mean? Such, so I'm trying to sort this out and um, I also am trying to sort this <laughs> yeah. out. Mm. Well, if I can say while you're thinking, Please. so the way that this is working in me, I think really, really similar, like, this unsustainable, like we, you had written that, like, it's like a seed, like a treat of a seed, a seed of a tree, a tree mm-hmm. of a seed, um, thinking that it's like a broken tree yeah. versus like, it's just exactly where it needs to be. And like, it will grow, but it's not like, it's like the result is the same. The result is a tree, mm-hmm. but it's like, what does the, pr- what pressure is that seed feeling? And I think like for me, it's tricky because like, I want to change. I want to change. You know, I, I don't want to be a person who's stagnant. I want to be a person who's like paying attention. And it like, I want that sense of abundance. Like I want to feel like, who have I not met? What have I not thought about yet? What have I not tried? What experiences mm. have I not had? Like, I want my life to be like full and new. Like I want new things. I want to be able to look back in 10 years and be like, wow, so many things have changed and, you know, mm. deepened. So it's almost like that result of like a, a broader, deeper person is the same, but the it's like the motivation or the pressure around it is different or something. Like it's more about like, what does it feel good to experience? Like what feels alive, what feels like versus what feels like a should Yes. But it's tricky. That is a really helpful framing for me too. Like that to to place the idea of what brings me to life as opposed to my sense of should. Yeah. Because the sense of should and the sense of of striving is um a product of how is is a product of the culture familial and larger in which we were raised. Right. So, um, that's not necessarily us as much as it's, um, yeah. Enculturation. Um, I'm reading an author right now, uh, Gabor Mate, who's like a trauma specialist. Cool. And he has a new book called the myth of normal. That is unbelievably good. I'm loving it so much, but one of the things he clarifies, he does such a good job at just succinctly clarifying that for most of us, the thing we think is who we are is actually a persona that is like a constellation of adaptations that we had to, that we didn't choose. They were innate adaptations that we made to navigate our attachment relationships as children. Yeah. And then we believe we get lots of reinforcement through those attachment relationships to believe that that constellation of adaptations is actually who we are. When in fact, that's really small yeah. compared to what's actually in us. And that's what 
the Gabor Mate has in common with the Carl Jung stuff is the idea that there, there's the, the conscious personal self with the persona or the ego in these yeah. different ways of thinking about it. And, but it's embedded in an unconscious personal self, yeah. and that's embedded in a collective unconscious that right. is massive. Ugh. And that we all have inherited by virtue of the fact that we have ancestors that go back forever, right? right. So uh, all the way to the beginning of life is the way that they frame it. And I love that sense, even just the possibility that there's something that big that mm-hmm. I'm embedded mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. that I can situate myself in yes, and it's like interact a dance. with. It's like, it becomes a dance. That's the medium. Yes. I wish so much that Andrew was here because like, I have been talking about these exact things for months. Oh my gosh, that's for awesome. For months, Ryan. Like, and <laughs> so. I don't know where it's coming from for me, but I think it is like, so... Okay, you got to listen to my new record, The Hallowed Wide, because it's like about these things, too. But I feel like I finished that. And now I'm kind of like, like those things are leading me to like a new collection of things, like the implications of those things. So basically what it is for me is like The Hallowed Wide is like a manifesto for like seeing humanity in people. So that's that's like something that you Mm. had written about, too, like seeing the beautiful kind of uniqueness in the just sheer humanity of like each person Mm -hmm. and like look going out and looking for that kind of wonder. So like this practice I have with like, you know, the officiants, that's nice because it's something that's very regular. It's very like it's very boundary. like. Uh, they're not people, I'm not going to get their phone number, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's, it's a, it's a tiny little microcosm in which it's very safe to experiment. Um, But I also, I've talked about this on the podcast before too, but I also, I try similar things like in the grocery store or like, you know, like if I see someone who looks like they're, they don't know where something is, like, I'll be like, what are you looking for? You know, cause I know the grocery store very well. Or like, you know, I'll talk to the cashier or like, I love looking for these like little moments, just being like in the world kind of prepared for wonder. I love thinking about like, um, shifting the paradigm so that I can like try to, um, see a person or converse with a person in the, framework that is most flattering to them, you know, so that I can Hmm. try to like understand like, who are you? What are you, how are you talking to me given the like rubric that you're in, which is this stuff we're talking about of like these parameters of like identity. Anyway, I'm thinking about this a lot. And then after kind of having written that album, finished that album, I'm kind of like, I'm ready to like take it a step further, (laughs) which feels like what this conversation is like. Hmm. I don't know. I want to talk about it with you. Well, and I'm, I mean, I, I haven't had a chance to listen to the whole album, but I've listened to a few of the songs and what strikes me and continues to strike me is like when artists are accessing, whether we know it or not, this sort of collective unconscious, if that's what we want to call it. And we do. And and all of these are just words, right? Can we just all agree? These are just, words that will inevitably fail to capture the experience, but they give us a bridge to each other. So Andrew always says, um, no models are true, but some models are useful. I love that. Yeah. Oh man. It's like a very, it's a scientist kind of a thing to think, but I think it applies. That's one of those things that's porous where like scientists and artists are like thinking about the exact same stuff, but like using different methods and language to get at them. Mm. I love that. Yeah. So if, so if we are to the, the extent that we connect is to a, that is a model is a model that's but wrong, to the but extent useful. that we connect yeah. that, that there's the, the idea that there are these primal primordial 
images and affects or feelings. And what's interesting to me is like, cause you had Holly on your podcast yeah. and she talked about her show. There are archetypal, like ancient, typical universal images that just came through in her yeah. show and that come through in the hallowed wide. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it's yeah. really Truth, interesting to me notice. that there are anyways, those overlapping things are, that's the thing that has me enamored right now, which is, mm, but you don't, I'd be interested to know, like in the context of this conversation about striving, to what extent you feel like striving was a part of the process to access that. For me, if I'm being like completely honest, yeah. it's not like mm. f for me, I think given the context of my trauma and like, you know, my very particular set of circumstances, the creative process has always been pretty pure for me. Like the actual creative process, the making of the thing. The writing itself. Is I do it alone. It's it's really wholesome. I don't get shamey. Like mm -hmm. it's a very, very safe space for me. Mm -hmm. It that's like that's the place where like I go to be safe. Um, it's the communicating about the thing, the trying to sell the thing, the 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 um that's the strive. One of the hardest parts for me is like asking other artists to collaborate with me. That will get all my triggers. Like that will mm. push all my buttons. Cause I just have a lot of fear that like, I won't be, um, well received that like, I, I won't be like taken care of, you know, like the, like I give a lot and like as a person and I'm happy to do it. Like my life is genuinely more joyful when I like give a lot but there is just a limit to which you can give without getting some things back. Oh, for sure. And I, I, think I struggle with that. I think it's so, I think it's, it's, this goes back to the idea of like creating the conditions for the growth to happen on its own. Right. I think and I it's have lots of notes so, on that here too. so important yeah. to find a group of at least a few people who you feel you can just, you can jump well, and out of the plane with, right? Like we're just going to, we're going to go together now. And I know that no matter what happens, we're going to catch each other. That's an, that is a, that is a gift to find those people for Well, and I ourselves. almost, so I haven't, I haven't, I genuinely <clears throat> haven't experienced that until very recently. And only I think I'm at the very tip of the iceberg on it. But the way that it feels to me is like, I, I think those relationships, those types of relationships probably were available to me when I was in college and I didn't know how to access them because I didn't have enough trust. I didn't have enough kind of literacy about, um, how to, um, communicate myself to others. Mm. Like, you know, and so it's something that's really interesting to me. Like, I've been saying it a lot recently, like you, we don't know what we're in the middle of, like, we don't know what kind of things we're in the middle of. You get perspective, like on the other end, you know? Right. Yeah. And I think when I was in college, you know, surrounded by these incredible musicians, I had so much scarcity. I had not even begun to deal with the trauma of my childhood. I was pushing it like down, down, down. Mm. And as a result, just was filled with fear and inadequacy and shame 
And I didn't even know how to talk about that. I didn't, I didn't have language to say to people like, I'm terrified right now. And, and I, I'd love nothing more than to be like present and free, but like, I don't even know how I can't Mm. even begin to know how. So sometimes I think those things are also just like, we're on like a, our own kind of journeys. And sometimes we just don't even know, like, this is something that like, you know, not to be like this particular kind of woo, but like that cannabis has really helped me with. And I feel like sometimes when I am high, I, things that have felt so ridiculously complicated to me for decades, just feel like, oh, it's so, this is so easy. All I have to do is say, like, I'm feeling like I'm thinking about, I'm projecting my mom onto you right now. <laughs> like mm. it can be that easy, you know, or something. It can be like a much easier thing, wow. but I think it gets like, it gets very confusing. Yeah. I think, no, I, I it definitely can. I mean, I, the thoughts I have coming up. So, um, the flip side of that is that a call most universities, campuses, music programs are also built on scarcity. Yeah. Like, and so I don't, so I would, so there's a, there's a gentleness that I feel inclined to offer to Emily Merrill in her twenties at grad school, (laughs) you know, because, because where you went to school, I mean, there are pockets of safety maybe in the larger culture there, but it's, really driven by it, it is but uh, i also feel like i really feel because i know those people yeah. you know like and i the conversations that i've been able to have with some of my professors some of my peers now like more like present like it, it's like we're capable of it sure. if we have the right language sure. but it's almost like okay so i wanted to, i have this at the end of my notes but i'm I'm so interested in this idea that you've written about recently of like centering, like where we're centering a conversation oh, given, because yeah. this feels like very related to this problem to me. But like, do you want to go first? Like talk about what this idea, like sure. how you're thinking about it? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I came to kind of clarify it for myself as is often the case when I experienced it at the hands of other people just and so the idea of centering to me is being a part of a conversation where you where someone is sharing something of their story and their experience with you and it calls up really vulnerable feelings Mm -hmm. in you as a listener and so out of an inability to out of a lack of literacy maybe I love those words that you used um out of an inability to be present with the discomfort of holding a space for that person, mm. you turn the conversation around to yourself. Right. So, oh, and, okay. and so, for, and you, so you, so my experience in centering, I think the example I used in that thing I wrote is like, I've had a lot of my, of my female colleagues share like the reality of the prejudices that they faced in the workplace in higher education. And when I'm able to show up as a friend and supportive ally to them. I just, I just listen. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. And I hold a space for that. And, uh, and I also have memories of certain times where I failed to do that, where I, where I centered myself in my own journey towards 
understanding the problem of sexism, which is a really important conversation for men to be having actually, but not at that time. Sure. That is the wrong context for me to talk about things that I'm learning in the face of someone who's like, well, no, no shit. Right. (laughs) You know, like they're looking at me like they're sharing something really vulnerable with me. And when I, when I show up the way that I hope to show up, does, um, I'm not going to center myself in that conversation. I'm going to hold a space for them to remain at the center of the conversation. So I, that's what I mean by yeah, centering. I think I had like really thought of that a different way and maybe because like of what I'm, what I'm like coming up against or what I'm kind of thinking about. But I feel like I will have a tendency to center the conversation around the other person in a bad way. Like for oh, example, if yeah. I'm talking to someone who is still LDS, currently LDS, I feel like I can feel that it's more comfortable for that person if like we just speak that language and I know how to. Mm-hmm. So I might as well, you know, sure. like I'll center the conversation in like that person's language. But I feel like that's just one example that's easy to understand, but it happens in so many ways. Like mm-hmm. we will sort of maybe agree, like non-verbally agree to like have a conversation in someone's ethos or someone's state of mind, um, someone else's set of parameters. Yeah. And I feel like that is something that like, so I'm reading this in the context of all your other posts and thinking about like, what if I were to teach the way that I feel like I should teach Mm -hmm. instead of like, we're centering the teaching that we do in the parameters of this like academic thing And even like, I have conversations like this with my therapist sometimes, like, like sometimes we will just have a conversation about like the practice of psychotherapy Mm -hmm. and like, what is it? Like, it's hard to say what it is because it shifts over the years. The boundaries change at the end of the day. Like, are we just two people talking like in these, in this boundary environment? Are we friends? Like, I don't know. It's like these Hmm. parameters are very... They're very... They're fluid. Or they could be. Yeah. Like, they're not always. Sure. But I feel really burdened by, like, the conversations that we think we're supposed to be having. And I think what I'm saying is, I think, you know, if I could go back to school now, I think I would have a really different experience, obviously, for a million reasons. But, you know, not the least of which is I'd be able to just say, that's not what it feels like to me. Mm-hmm. And I never thought I could say that, you know, does that, what do you think? Oh man. So, uh, that's really interesting. The, what comes up to me when you frame the idea of centering in that context is, uh, two things come to mind very quickly, which is the first is that my experience as a collaborative artist in an improvised setting, right. Is that if I give away my, if I, if I just center the other musicians and I don't, contribute something of my own it dies and I think we actually talked about that last time yeah I'm having deja vu right now but yeah so (laughs) but the so there's so I really resonate with what you said about the idea of centering someone else in a way that kind of suppresses what would be most authentic to me yeah this goes back to that Gabor Mate book I'm reading right now actually which is the yeah because he said he's literally talking about He's a, he's a, he's a doctor. He's 
collected like 25,000 articles to try to put together the evidence that shows without a doubt that suppressing our authenticity is the root of most chronic illness. Yeah, I believe that. It's amazing. Yeah. And so this idea of suppressing my voice in order to accommodate other people is really on the forefront of my mind right now. And I love the way you frame that. And I do think that is consistent with what I'm talking about centering. It's like flipping it around. I'm going to center the other person so that they're comfortable because I can read the room and I can tell what's going to make everybody else comfortable. And me showing up as me might Might not make them comfortable. Yeah. So what do you, so I feel that deeply. What do you think identity is? Oh man. I, Andrew, (laughs) so like, we're just gonna, that's all the way there. I know. I, I have. Um, I think it might be what I write about next. <laughs> like, I d- like what I what is identity? Before we jump into identity, oh yeah, please. I think I want to. I also want to go into that question you asked, which was, "What if I taught?" Oh yeah, I definitely want to spend I more time there too. Felt like a, if I if I was just teaching, I had the most amazing conversation with Dante Winslow about this. Uh, he's an incredible producer, cool. artist in L.A. Oh, who, he came out to interview for the position at UVU? Uh, he, he may or may he, not have. He was here. So, okay, well, um, I think I met him is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I think he, I met um, him in a hallway. So he, but he, we were, I, we had this incredible conversation just, I think this was like last month, where he's, he said the way he's been thinking about teaching yeah. is, what if you had two weeks before you knew you were going to pass away heavy and you, and you're teaching people who don't speak your language. How do you get across the core values of the music, the things that are most important? Mm. And I thought, what an amazing thought experiment for a teacher to hang out with. Yeah, Like, you know, you're going to be gone. You know that this thing you're carrying is just precious and you want to pass it on. Yeah. You have two weeks. What, what do you do? What is the thing? Like, so. I feel even confused about what is the thing you're carrying? Like, is this thing a music thing? Is this thing a human thing? Is this thing like a life experience thing? Like, that feels very confusing to me. I mean, in the context of this conversation, it was the core values of the music. Like, and we were, we were talking about like African-American music. Like, how do you, how do we pass that on? Can you give me an example of, of what, what, what what is one of those core things? Oh, um, cause this question just like, it falls apart for me really quickly. Well, I mean, I think it's, uh, I'm trying to think of a, it's really hard to move towards concrete versions of the thing that don't reduce it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Cause I feel like, because it's a complex, it itself is a complex organism. Well, if you take it back, you know, a lot of these things in music and dance are about people. They're about community. They're like, like I've been talking, Andrew and I have been talking a lot recently about like fables And the way in which you can teach like a child, like a deep cultural principle in like a quick fable. Mm -hmm. And I almost feel like music does a similar thing. Like music is like a shortcut to like a, like a deeper type of connection. Yeah. It's a shortcut. It's like a wormhole. Like you could spend all of these years building that in other ways, or you can dance and sing together. And then it's like, this is why I'm saying it falls apart for me. Cause like when I take the music back 
when you, you keep going back, it's like music is just like love. You know, music is like an experience in community. And then sometimes I get real like, what are we doing? <laughs> like, what are we sure. doing here? Well, and I think, wow. So which of those to? I know. I, I feel like. <laughs> I don't know. I know and I, mean, I don't this, know This will sound really, this might sound like sappy and overly sentimental, but what you said is actually like the beginning of it for me. I, as a musician, even when I'm, if I'm teaching aural skills, which is, is not a particularly fun class yeah. or could be not fun, when I play simple, simple exercises for my students, I, because basically what I do, because I teach that class is like, here's this really basic thing that you need to be able to recognize, go practice it in 12 keys a few hundred times yeah. until you hear it. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. that's my class in a nutshell. But when I play it for them or with them, I am very intentionally the, the note, the pitch is like a, is like a clothing that I am putting on a body of like, hopefully compassionate connection yeah. and or love if I that's believe, what we so it's like I believe that. let me play these sounds and send them out to you on this vibe this frequency yeah and um and so that that's a part of it and they feel the difference they feel they it absolutely any yeah. human does yeah um and so so that to me is actually not well, speaking of, like, it's interesting. The dialogue in my head right now is, do I dare say these things? Because say high, like do super, it. super rational <laughs> colleagues of mine would just tear this to pieces. They won't listen but to it. that's a fair point. So <laughs> They're um, not going to find it. The people who are listening are like art weirdos. <laughs> perfect. Who want to yeah. go all these places, too. Yeah. So for me, I love that. Okay. So that is actually not reductive or overly sentimental to recognize that 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 my goal as a musician is to create the conditions for me to send sound out on a, a wavelength or a frequency of loving intention care yeah and care and connection and compassion so and that is absolutely where i want the sounds to come from which doesn't mean sicky sweet all the time yeah because in my experience um what we think what i think of as love is absolutely truth telling and we'll Amen. face the starkest of realities and hold a space for that yeah. when we talk about actual empathy rooted in human connection and sharing so that that is one of those core values to me yeah and me, so me too. so how do i get that across it's actually in how I play yeah. anything for my students. Well, another thought I've been having recently, just thinking about music specifically, because, okay, I was going to say this before, but doing this podcast, it's been, it's been an incredibly interesting experience for me, talking to artists who are in institutions like we are, mm -hmm. artists who couldn't be farther from an institution. Like I interviewed, um, his episode will come out in like two weeks, but I interviewed a leather worker who makes like specifically like floggers and like bondage and like kink gear. And like that, <laughs> this is a person who's not going to give a single shit about like what's happening in academia. Right. You know, but then I'm interviewing people who are in like the symphony and like their income, 
like really depends on like all of these institutional, uh, like moving parts in these kind of like mechanical structures. And then I interview artists who are like, like they're on the fringe. Like it's like a, they're like doing radical, like pioneering things. Um, and it like, it has made everything feel so simple and also so just dramatically complicated. Like these, I feel like the, the being the person who does this podcast Mm -hmm. has made me have a couple of like, real paradigm shattering experiences in the last three years since I started doing around this. institutions, no around art. Oh, okay. Around like what the hell it is that we're doing mm. it, because it's all the same and it's not the same at all. Yeah. So like, just as one example, when I think about music, like jazz is such an interesting case study because what is it like? Um, I feel like when I see musicians improvising together and maybe um, accessing this altered state of consciousness that we're talking about that specifically happens in improvised music, and I there's nothing that I love, well, I don't know, there's very little that I love more mm-hmm. than watching a group of jazz musicians improvise together. Mm-hmm. Not like one soloist, yeah. but like everyone is improvising together. A true collective. I'll, I'll tell you, Ryan, like that is not something that I really know how to do. Mm. Like that, that's, I'm not good at that. Like improvising is not something that is like a native language to me. Like I'm interested in it. Um, but I mean, this is one of those things, right? Like I, I, I hear jazz music as a teenager. I feel moved by it. I feel like there's something so interesting here but I don't have like a natural improvisational skill set. Like that is not something that's intuitive for me. So I take myself to North Texas kind of assuming that all the other students feel like me. Cause mm-hmm. why, what, what else would I assume as a 17 year old? Um, and then, you know, when there are other students who are much better at this thing, it's real easy to like, you know, position myself farther down in that particular hierarchy. Yeah. And the older that I get and the more experience that I have, the more that I realize that is something that is so special. And I'm so glad that there are people spending time on that. And I think what I want to do is like write really carefully crafted stories Mm. and it's not lesser. It's just a different thing. Yeah. But in the context of the university of North Texas jazz studies program, it's, I get why it felt lesser, but I don't know whether if I would have had the words to say, I'm on a different path than some of you. And this is the place where it does make sense for me to be. Cause I have no regret about choosing that. Um, I do think it was the right place for me to go. I just wish maybe that I would have had the literacy again to say, I'm not headed the same place as some of you. Yeah. Anyway, I'm saying so many things, but what I want to say is even within jazz music, all of these things exist, right? There's this improvised music. And then there's like what Maria Schneider is doing, which is like meticulous, you know, and Mm -hmm. crafted. But these people, we, Maria Schneider and, you know, whoever's the most beautifully group improvisational people we can think of. I don't know. I'm not going to try to say somebody, but these people are in the same profession. These people have the same basic like pedigree. Yeah. But are doing completely different things. Yeah. And when we put ourselves as professors, which students are we teaching? You know, like it's very yeah. complicated. Like what are we doing? 
it's very weird. Well, that might lead meaningfully to the next core value, which to me has to do with the refine, refining and sense of your, the experience of your individual voice within a collective context, right? Please so, talk more about this. So I, um, so what, what I think my sense of what I'm doing as a teacher or trying to learn how to do is be the kind of mentor that helps the student clarify what they're doing, what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think where I they're, the where same way. I had a beautiful experience. Oh man, this was a, such an amazing experience in my studio. Again, I'll say over the last three years, a student who just struggling to like to get them to practice anything <laughs> and yet they'll yeah. keep walking in and saying, no, I want to be a music major, I know. but right. And it's like, ugh. and so finally I like stopped and got really curious about what was going to bring them to life. Yeah. And it turned out that they had a penchant for, um, like <laughs> for Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. They love it. Yeah. And they have characters that they've developed and, and that as a composer, unbeknownst to me, they'd written a light motif to represent one of their characters. Cool. So I'm like, show me that. Yeah. And they show me. And and then I was like, oh, I know what we're doing today. And it's yeah. not trumpet. I'm going to teach you some really basic ways to develop a theme. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that lesson turned into, again, just like they came alive yeah. and the, and like tears of, of just the, the, the sheer thrill of seeing something that they had, um, like conceived they had created, they had, yes, yeah. that they brought into the world yeah. and seeing it yeah. evolve or grow. And like, it really was such a moving experience. So the more I teach, the more I am convinced that mm, that's, kind of my job is to is for me to show up as me in a way that allows them to feel safe to show up as them totally. in a way that allows us to take a journey that will be utterly unique for every single one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I still have a really invested interest in passing on jazz music because yeah, I love things. that too. Yeah. Um, but it's rare to have someone who comes in that actually wants that. It's really true. And, and I that's think fine with me. Like I there's no reason to student, push it. Yeah. You know, like I wasn't one of those people. Um, yeah. And then I can totally see my professors just being like, I don't know what this student is doing. Yeah. And I can see me as a 20 something being like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I but don't, the other part I don't of know. that that I would like really true, like I would lean into pretty hard just like hanging out with my friend Emily would be yeah. your, which is what you're doing. You are the, you are a consummate improviser. It's what you do with your whole career. You keep building and improvising and things happen and you change and you adapt and you, and, and in fact, there's a, I just finished up a book project that I've been working on for the last 12 years with a mentor of mine. That's about teaching improvisation. I can't wait. I'm can't so wait excited for it. it. It's finally done. And, yeah, I can't. So we'll see when it actually comes out, given supply chain problems. But yeah. Um, but one of the things that we really emphasize is improvisation is innately human. Well, okay. Everyone, I, I'm glad you said everybody that. is wired 
that's how we all deal with every problem we have in life. Well, I'm glad you said that because I, so. I do feel that. And I do feel like as a human, I'm an excellent improviser. Yeah. As a sharp nine, whatever, less so. <laughs> but but that's, I think- then, you, then we jump into what may or may not be interesting to podcast listeners for this podcast. But there's a version of, of that, an academic approach to jazz that is so far removed from the core values of the music that... And it is used as a measuring stick to stifle people so that other people feel like they're really good and important. So speaking of centering, right, there's a pedagogical approach to jazz, particularly within higher education. And I'm sure this is true of every art form that it exists. The pedagogy itself exists to make the teachers seem smart, which is complete BS. Like I have no interest in that at all. All and so somewhere along the line, young Emily encountered that, and mm-hmm. maybe interpreted that as, oh, because I'm facing pedagogy that is actually about centering the teacher yeah. as opposed to growing the student. I feel like I'm not innately good at this. I have a hard time believing that that would be true of you, but that doesn't mean that that's, no, that's the direction exactly you want to go. To me, but I mean, I think that is exactly what happened to me, and I think. <clears throat> I think I'm, I'm aware of some of that, you know, but, um, or maybe I'm aware of a lot of it, but I do think like the journey that I want to be on now is like, like, as you said, like, how did you put it? Cause you put it such a beautiful way. Um, something about ordinary. I'm looking at it. I'm looking for it. Oh yeah. The courage to create what is ordinary to you with confidence and openness. Yeah. Like, the, I mean, you wrote that, but like that, that's a Ryan Nielsen quote. <laughs> well, inspired by a John McNeil quote, I was very sure. fortunate to have a mentor who said to me, he shared this beautiful story that, that I hope he's okay with me sharing it. But before every gig, John is a, John is a, one of the true. I'm sure he would be honored to have you share it. He's like a, he played trumpet with Thad Jones and with. Horace Silver and wow. like he's just a and he's his Hush Point recordings are amazing so anybody who's interested in jazz if you haven't discovered the group Hush Point yet go love that go but discover that's, it yeah, yeah. so um, <laughs> anyways but he he calls his wife before every performance and he says to her tell me tell me again and she says be ordinary Yeah, that's beautiful. What's ordinary to you is who you are. And what's ordinary to you is the most extraordinary thing. That's exactly his, his point. And he would, that's what he would, he really kind of pushed that on me because he could tell I was riddled with all kinds of performance anxieties when I started studying with him. So for him to say, what's obvious to you is actually what's closest to you. Yeah. And he would say to me, like, if you're reaching you're actually losing that unique perspective, which is a fascinating way to think about creating. And yeah. so, so just to be clear, that use of the word ordinary yeah. was gifted me by one of my mentors, I but it. I love it too. And I think it's so important and yeah. I, we need to shout it from the roofs. This feels like a, fr- <laughs> so. like a new frontier to me personally. I mean, again, I think I just had no room as a child to even build my own identity because I was raised by narcissists, you know, and their identity is the only identity that ever, that it exists. And you either like be part of that or you suffer some serious consequences. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, but 
I was a little maverick as a child. Like there, I had something, I had some kind of stubborn something mm. that was just like, I don't know. I don't think I'm like you. And I didn't know what that meant. And it caused me so much grief and a lot of pain. Thank you. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I remember distinctly, like I was just talking about this with Andrew even last night. Cause I'm, I'm having lots of new thoughts about my parents recently, like mm -hmm. brand new thoughts that I've never had before. Um, just kind of seeing them as like just people instead of seeing them as like my parents, mm -hmm. which is difficult. And I kind of flicker in and out of and in and out of it. But I, I distinctly remember just being a little kid and just saying to my, my dad, like, but I don't like that. And you do like, why is this confusing? Like, cause my dad would be like, well, just do this. And I would be like, I don't want to, mm. <laughs> like, and it wouldn't be like, do the dishes. It would be like, play baseball. You know, like I right. don't, I don't, but I don't want to, <laughs> like, can't, can't I just anyway, but I do think like, you know, the way it looks to me is like, I spent my whole youth in a battle, like my childhood and my youth in a battle to preserve my own identity. Like I didn't maybe know exactly that that's what I was doing, but I feel like that's absolutely what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Just fighting to keep like any little sense of like what that little thing is mm -hmm. that's like me and not my parents and not my, the broader family culture, you know, and then I took that to North Texas, which in many ways was such, it was the perfect place for me to be because it was so different mm. <laughs> from my parents. It was something that I couldn't even draw a line from my parents to that because mm -hmm. it was so different. And in many ways that really helped me like break a lot of assumptions and presumptions, but it was kind of like a replacement. You know what I mean? Like yes. it was just like another very, very strong paradigm, another very, very strong, very, um, not always great at seeing other ways. And then, you know, I moved to Utah and was a professor at BYU mm -hmm. and then my mom died and then I spent two years trying to decide if there was a, a way to keep contact with my dad. I've been no contact with my dad for two and a half years. Mm. So I went no contact with my dad right when a global pandemic was beginning, which upset my whole career. Anyway, so all, all this to say, <laughs> this brings us to now, where I think maybe for the first time in my life, I have the room and I'm not in a trauma to kind of be like, who the hell am I? Mm. <laughs> what would we like to try? What would we like to try to do and be? I think um, even though our stories have some differences, there are so many similarities too. I think that's what you're speaking to is exactly why this kind of goes back to our the, the conversation about teleology, but why I'm so captivated by the idea of play right now. And by mm. a definition of play um, that was written by an author named Christopher Wallace, where he says that play is doing something for the sheer sake of the act itself mm. with absolutely no, there's no goal. There's yeah. no telos. There's no, right. It's just mm -hmm. like, you're just doing it for the act of itself. Mm. And, um, and there are there are spiritual traditions that, like um, that, 
that go back thousands of years that frame that frame play as the only like non-karmic activity. So any other thing you do is going to create like a cause and effect in the universe. Interesting. But if you do something from a place of play, wow, you're participating in the universe's work is basically what it is. <laughs> Isn't that cool? I love so, that. Yeah. And so it's like this idea that you're, that play is a spontaneous expression of mm-hmm. the, your, the universe, which you are yeah. made of. And so play. And that to me is a really big piece of what I'm trying to understand right now. I think it's just central mm-hmm. to this, to stepping into becoming who we are is like, yeah. what would I do if I were doing it, it without any agenda, yeah. without any goal, without then what would I do? And I think that that's like the purest. Yeah. You know. I'm so there with you. And like, we haven't like, you wrote about that a little, but like you didn't write what you just said to me. At least I didn't read it, I think. Well, but, I but this is so interesting to me because I really have been saying the same things. Like I, I've been saying to Andrew for months, like as soon as the hallowed wide is out, I am prepared to enter a chaotic period where I do whatever the fuck I want. Mm-hmm. The period, the end. Like, and just, and I know, I know myself well enough to know that like, they're going to be creative things and I'm going to want to write about them, you Mm -hmm. know, like, and I'll probably create work about them at some point. But like, I feel this, like, I feel this kind of pull to just like play, to just try things. And I, you know, to me, like even conversations feel like play. Like, Mm -hmm. what if I just say, like, I, I had this, I had this experience with Chelsea Jones, you know, Chelsea, right? Mm -hmm. She teaches the other sections of oral skills. Yes. (laughs) And I I need to like talk about this more with her, but like, I've been so busy, but I think this happened in like maybe May it was cause it was right. It was the day that graduation happened in May. And I, um, Andrew and I went over to their house. Like we made pizza and we were kind of hanging out. And, um, I had this conversation with Chelsea where like I was a little bit drunk, I think. And, uh, and we were having a conversation where I was feeling vulnerable and it was nothing. It was like a very non, it wasn't a deep conversation. Mm-hmm. It was something so like, do you want another slice of pizza? You know, something very nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, my mother would trap me in those nothing conversations so frequently and turn it, in, just spin it into some big thing. Oh. And, you know, just in the minutia of the things that you're saying when you don't think you need to be careful, that's where she would like get you. And, uh, and I just, I was feeling myself like feeling that and projecting that onto Chelsea. Cause I do that. I do that with women. Um, and I think it makes my relationships with women really difficult sometimes. And it's something that I'm trying to think about, but I just said to Chelsea, I was just like, I'm doing a thing right now where I'm like thinking about my mom and it's not about you. And it's just like, I, I just, I'm in a weird thing. And then I'm feeling like I'm being weird and then I'm trying to like not be weird. And then that's also weird. And I'm just telling you, that's what I'm doing. And she was like, am I like me? Am I doing something? And I was like, no, you're perfect. Mm. You're not doing anything. Uh, This is just, I'm just having a, I'm just having a trauma. And then we just like giggled and laughed and it was fine. And then I felt like we were like closer for that. Yeah, you just named it. But it's just a taboo, right? It's just like, so I've, I've been experimenting lately with like, just, just 
shortcutting the thing. <laughs> like yeah. it doesn't always work, but that also feels like play. Mm-hmm. Like what if I just trusted that like Chelsea Jones is my friend and that I can just say to her, like, just name I'm this thing a, that's happening. I'm having a weird thing right now and it has nothing to do with you. And I like you so much and I just want you to like me. And then it's just like, Oh, well I like you. And then it's like, well, I like you. Let's mm. go have another slice Let's of pizza. Let's go have some more pizza. You know, I yeah. don't know. It's tricky though. It's hard. It is hard. Cause not everybody wants to like do it, but I'll tell you what, this podcast has become a playground for me. Yeah. And I've said it this a bunch of times recently, but it's a practice too. Like it's a practice of like having a real time, no rules conversation with a person. Sure. Um, and I've trapped you here. (laughs) Yeah. Which is a different thing altogether. (laughs) Yeah. No, I, there's something about that interaction of ordinariness and play that you're speaking to that feels really radical. It feels radical and it feels like it's a crucial piece of the, the question of, can I sustain my creative growth? Yes. And, and So that goes to like the, even like in the nuts and bolts of like, if I'm picking up my instrument and I'm going to practice today, there's, there's two ways to do that. I can do it with a goal or I can play. Yeah. I can get playful. Now, it's still, there's still organization to the play. Yes. There are still principles that I'm cultivating but playfully. So Kate. it's not just cause I, cause I definitely, <laughs> I would never want if, if by chance a student of mine ever listened to this, I would never want them to think that I mean just play what you feel <laughs> like in a self aggrandizing self indulgent, um, way. Uh, those words aren't working for me. Those are too moralistic, but you know what I mean, right? Like this, cause some people run away from themselves by roof, by, mm, by holding to a dogma of self indulgent self expression. Oh, totally. Rather than saying, I'm going to cultivate a garden of creativity in my life. And that, you know, I actually do want plants to grow. I think it has something. Well, that's what I was saying before. Like you do want plants to grow, which is why it's confusing because it's a little bit like the result is still the same. We want the plant to grow. We just want to go about it in a creative way. But yeah, I have a whole, like I have a section in here about like, uh, yeah. Cause I know like you, you have grief and I have grief around like the lack of teachability of many students that we encounter and many people in the world, like just a, like a, a lack of ability to like receive wisdom and care from someone else. And these things feel like they could so easily be mutually exclusive. Like it's really, really tricky. Like that space in there is very small where we want to say like, my job here as your teacher is to help you be the best you that you can be which could imply that like the student already, they don't need you. But of course it doesn't mean that, but it is very, it is very careful. I see what you're, I see what you're saying. I think so. So correct me if I start going down a path that's different than what you're speaking to. But I feel like with my students, 
what's the best? I feel like there's first off, there's a way to parse out what they've come to me for. Sure. There's a way to say, there's a language. If you want to teach French, you got to speak French. What you're speaking is gibberish that sounds like French. Let's learn how to speak French. Yeah. Right. Um, there's a way to, to frame it, which is, we use that metaphor all the time. This is a language and there is a syntax. If you want other people who speak the language to understand you and to want to collaborate with you, then you need to learn how to speak the language. Right. But that's not an indicator of your worth or value as a creative artist. Right. And it's if just that's a language. Not the thing you want. Maybe then, there are other paths. Then find another language. That's right. right. And the only thing that I insist on with my students there is it's just that the language needs to be more than just Western Europe. It needs to be respectful so, and, and holistic. So, um, yeah. but then Amen the other side, that. the other side of it, is the, like, it really is about me refining my sensitivity to be able to tell when they are moving in an authentic direction, which really means me cultivating a relationship with myself that is aware of that movement. Please say more about that. And, uh, well, I need to get to a place where I can tell when I am being true to me versus when I am... mm, playing what I know would be received well by people in my community. Right. Sometimes those might line up and that's fine if they do, but the motive needs to be here's, here's me. And, and so, and I have to be aware of that and I have to cultivate a relationship with myself. That's aware of that. If I'm going to um, successfully create a space and a culture within my classroom and studio that honors that in my students. And that is my, that, that undergirds everything that I try to do as a teacher. Amen. So, um, well, and then it gets even it, like, even just, I loved, I didn't ever talk about this with you cause I was too busy. Like really these past couple months of wedding season have been like <laughs> with like trying to prepare this release, this album release, and then it being wedding season and then I school starting. Imagine it. I've been like a shell of a person. Like I, I get insomnia and I don't even mind sometimes cause I, my brain, that's where my brain gets to process some things. Mm. Cause I have not had the processing time that I need, but like I said, it's kind of like it's over today. <laughs> this yeah. is the end of it. But I mean, you know, like who knows? Sometimes I'm like optimistic about these things in a way that I sh- maybe shouldn't be. But this experience that we had where like I was teaching songwriting and one of my students was asking about, Oh, what was the word they used? Like rolling or something? Not swing feel, but oh, the grid, the rounded, rounded, yeah, the rounded subdivision. Yeah, and so yeah. I had a student. So I'm teaching for the listener. I'm teaching songwriting. We were doing a class. We were talking about grooves, and I was talking about different kinds of swing feel. And one of the students said, "You know, is this like rounded?" And I was like, "I'm not familiar with that term." And they were like, "Well, Dr. Nielsen uses it." So I was like, "Well, this is so easy. I'll just text him." <laughs> and then you had said, "Like, I'm so glad you texted me." And then I didn't ever reciprocate that, but I wanted you to know, like, to me, a big part of this feels like having fluency and a shared language with our colleagues, because if we as colleagues are united about these kinds of goals, that is really helpful and very empowering. You know, we can feel safe as teachers, like exploring some of the parameters of what it is we're doing, because so I hear what you're saying, like when we're teaching private lessons and even when we're teaching classes, it can feel like, okay, I, as an individual, I'm trying to know what my like pride, 
my pride and my ego things are, I'm trying to figure out what like humility and presence and, you know, whatever, like what these things really mean to me. I'm trying to decide what my ethical constraint is to this student who we're going to give a piece of paper that says a thing to this person. And that needs Mm. to, you know, there is some like ethical obligation in a university setting that means we do need to impart some certain things. Anyway, it's really complicated. That's already so complicated. Yeah. But if you feel like you can go to your colleague who's three doors down and be like, what do you think about this? This is the conversation I'm trying to have. This is the kind of teacher I'm trying to be. That can be really helpful. For sure. But it's also like a difficult conversation to like one of my notes in here is like, how do we even begin to like have a a framework of a conversation with our colleagues about like what we're trying to do as a team? Because so much of it is culture, I think. So much of it is culture. And, yeah. And it's, that's a hard, that's a really hard one for me. Um, Because Um, there is, because it really does go to that feeling safe. Yeah. It really does go to, is there a culture of, of sharing and of, of, of respect, of, yeah, of mutual, it's not admiration, that's not the right word, it's because I actually, who gives a shit about that, exactly, yeah, Um, it's almost like if that's the thing that's happening, we've done something wrong, yeah, that's what it feels like to me, I agree, I don't want anybody to admire me, because I don't know what the hell I'm doing, you know, like, (laughs) I mean, I tell this to my students all the time, I just, I'll say to them, like, I know some things about this that you don't know yet. And I'm here to share all of that. But like, I really hope there's plenty that I don't know. How boring would it be if I'm 34 and I like, of course, of course there's things I don't know. Like I love, I love leveling with my students about that kind of thing. What I'm often saying about that is, is these things we're doing in class together are not an indicator of your aptitude, your talent or your worth. Yeah. They're just, the only question here is, how many times have you done this thing in many contexts? Yeah. That's it. And so, yeah. And I think we're speaking to the same thing when we lay it out like that. It's like, don't take this to mean more than it means. Yeah. But go do the work. Yeah. It's like we yeah. have to meet some benchmarks in order to give you this piece of paper, but this isn't the point. Yeah. This is just a thing. This is like one thing. I'm really intrigued by your question about like collegiality and how to be in a space where you can share. That's a... I've been thinking about it so much. That's a tough one that's facing, I think a lot, certainly facing me and a lot of my friends and colleagues at institutions throughout the country. So I'll just say I really appreciate the, I mean, I love that we can talk about that. It's nice to have colleagues who we feel like we can talk about those things with. Um, Well, I've been talking about it with lots of our colleagues, just so you know. (laughs) Like These are conversations I'm having. Planting the seeds. But I think one thing that I'm trying to do is like, just again, like approach these things in a human kind of a way, like whatever that means. But like, you know, we had our big mixtape concert last weekend, um, which is like the commercial music ensembles concert. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how one of my values is like, 
I want to think of all of the students as my students, whether or not they're ever in a class with me. Like they are our students. That is something that I feel strongly about. And I also feel strongly that I want the students to see all of us as their faculty. So some little things that I've been doing are like, I just talk about my colleagues in my classes, Mm. you know, in a human way. Like, you know, I was having pizza with Chelsea Jones the other day, you know, like Mm -hmm. I want to talk about my colleagues to my students in a way that's like, we are a community, whether or not you've had this person as your teacher. I put together that like meet your faculty thing and introduced like all the faculty to my students. Um, And then like at the concert, like after my students performed, I went out in the audience and I wrote like notes to all of the students who were in the other concerts and some of, uh, in the other groups and to their teachers. And some of those students have been my students. Some of them are not, but just like, what about your programming is like, what am I loving? Like, and only positive things like, no, like, yeah. no, like, let me give you notes, but just like, I loved this moment. This was beautiful. That was so nice. And that just feels like an abundance practice. Like, I know that if I keep doing that every semester, like if that's just a thing that I do, I know all of those students, whether they've ever been in a classroom with me, will see me as a person they trust. Mm -hmm. I just think that's true. So I don't know. It's just like little things, I think. It goes back to your practice of looking for creative moments on the, on your I think it's wedding all, gigs too, right? It sounds like you're, thing. you're, you're very conscientiously cultivating that for yourself right now. I really am. And that's like, cause like I wrote the hallowed wide, which is like a framework. It's like a model for connection. Mm-hmm. That's what I think it is. And I don't know. It feels like a little narcissistic to be like, I wrote this thing and I'm trying to like live my thing. <laughs> but like, I think I wrote it for me like it's for me it's my it's like a it's a tool that i'm using and i'm also saying to the world like here (laughs) if this resonates with you like please take it but it feels pretty fucking real to me you know and it feels like i i really want to try to like be in a hallowed wide with as many people as i can be in one with Mm -hmm. and like you know taboos and like um, structures of power, like be damned a little. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What I do you, love it. What do you think? Well, I, that's all beautiful to me. I, um, I think that's the heart of what we're trying to do at the heart of what we're trying to cultivate in our classrooms. Yeah. And just and as the people. That, yeah. And as people, and the thing that comes to mind for me there is the skill that it takes to, it really to is know, a skill. Yeah, to know yourself, let alone to try and help other people along the way. But um, it takes an amazing amount of skill. Actually, the thing that's for me that keeps coming to mind is um, I think it's an Emily Dickinson poem that's called Tell the Truth, But Tell It Slant. Mm, tell me more. It's Well, it's just like tell it slant enough that people can handle it. It's literally like you can't look straight at the sun, right? Because right. if you... If we came and turned on the fire hose and pointed it at our students, they would immediately feel complete shutdown, overwhelmed, flooding. Well, and that's and, where this. And like... so there's a huge skill set that I am still and always will be so interested in developing as a teacher that 
It's like how much you're, it's titration, right? That's what we're actually dealing with. I don't know how, that word. Oh, it's like with a medication, you titrate the amount that you take. Mm. That's what the word titration means. Um, like basically dosage, right? Sure. If you were to give yourself all of the medication that you need at once, it could be fatal. But if you titrate it, it can keep you alive or help you heal mm. or right. And so I, and there's even that too. It's like, what, what are the students and what am I well, re- ready for? How much can I And this handle? feels where like that centering thing maybe does have a place because maybe we start by centering the student and the language they already know. And then, you know, we're talking about teaching a musical language, but we're also talking about teaching just a, 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 com- a type of conversation yeah. or like a type of like, what is the, like, because we can say to a student, like, you can be vulnerable here. But like that means that can mean different things. Sure. You know, like that can mean all kinds of things. Um, Yeah. I think for me, like the way that it feels to me, and this is when I'm talking about medium and like, what is medium? Sometimes I feel like the thing that I'm trying to do is like speak as many human languages as possible. Yeah. And I don't mean like linguistically, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like speak as many, like what is the, what is the way that your family speaks? What is the way that you know how to communicate? What does body language mean? And it's funny, I haven't Mm. had this thought before, but like my master's research was in like paralinguistics, which is like body language, how we use like inflection or Mm. like other, like, you know, for lack of a better word, like ornaments in our speech to communicate gender hierarchy class. Um, I don't know. I'm fascinated by those kinds of like subliminal, like codes. Yeah. Wow. That was part of your jazz degree. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I didn't, I I didn't do like a thesis or anything. I just in John Murphy's like research class, which is one of the master's degree classes, you have to do like a pretty long paper, but it's not like it's not new research. It's oh, like okay. an amalgamation of yeah, like, yeah. but I, oh, I always have thought if ever I wanted to pursue a doctoral degree, I would want to take that further. Yeah. Like just maybe with, in particular regards to like the voice, like how do we, how do we perform? I see it all the time. Like people use their literal voices to be dominant or to be submissive sure. or to be, you know, we use our, we use our, our actual voices not our words, but our timbre, mm-hmm. our pitch range, like the way we're using breath, um, and things like gestures, facial expressions, like postures. Um, we use these things to to create and perpetuate hierarchies <laughs> in a way that is like fascinating to me. I've been trying to learn how to use those same things to to dismantle the hierarchy in my, Oh, I can tell I I can tell you some things about this if you ever want me to. That's I, I've just, I've found that I can use the observation of body language in my students to get them to trust themselves. Mm -hmm. Actually, where I, like when they're coming in, like that experience I shared at the beginning of our conversation today of the, of the student who realized that they like, were just yearning to connect to their, to their own family's musical heritage, mm-hmm. um, the way, like the mechanism to getting them to consider that was that I just observed to them. It's kind of like you talking about your conversation with Chelsea. It's like, I just named yeah. 
your body language sure changes when you talk about that. Yeah. They're like, what? What do you mean? Yeah. You know? I'm like, oh, everything relaxed. Your face became animated. And mm-hmm. I just named like, this is what your shoulders dropped. You're right. Like you were like coming home to yourself. Yeah. But when you were talking about this over here, your body was more rigid. It was off balance. It was leaning. It's that's really. And all I did was say, that's really interesting to me. Yeah. And then they go. And it, it like opened them up to trusting their intuition yeah. in a way that was really meaningful. So that's, that's interesting. I've never, I've, I, I just have been stumbling on into that more recently well, than not. But. I think this is why I feel like this thought of like, you don't know what you're in the middle of is so interesting to me. Cause like I'm a voice professional. Like I feel like the, like voice is my medium as much as music is. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm fascinated by voices. Like I love voices. I like, I'm obsessed. Like I, I just like auditory, like literal voices Mm -hmm. are like physiological voices are like so interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And then like, you know, it's a fairly natural path from that to music. And I definitely feel like music is a language I speak. It's a language I love. It's a language I communicate fairly fluidly within maybe depending on the genre or Mm -hmm. the people that I'm with. But then like increasingly, I just feel like, I just don't even know if that's the point. I think it's just like a, like, I think the thing I'm interested in is people. (laughs) Like I think I'm interested in people Mm -hmm. and music and the voice are like conduits to that thing. I, yeah, that for the way I've been thinking about something similar to that is that the, you know, because sometimes I'll see memes and things being shared that are like, music is the answer. And it's like, I know some pretty dark music. Yeah. I know some music that creates division and mm. discord and harms people, mm. you know, like literally moves them towards ill being. And um, and so it, it the way I've been thinking about that is like, yeah, it's not the, like, just like you're saying, like maybe the medium isn't music. Maybe the medium is people, people connect. Yeah. Maybe the medium is connection. Cause that's the music that I'm interested in. Well, maybe the medium is so, Ryan, you know, so. like if, if the thing is like, get to know yourself, if that's like what the root of the skill set is, like the medium is just like, be right, be the most Ryan, Ryan. And my medium is like, be the most Emily, Emily. (laughs) Which can only happen in, in, that's the funny part. It can only happen in relationship. Right. That's where we, that's where we refine those tools. That's where we. I'm so obsessed with it. Yeah. But I think it's like the whole point. Okay. So one of the other things I wanted to ask you about. Yes. Are we okay? Like, are you. I'm good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask, like you had written in one of your posts that wasn't like about music. You had written like, we are more than our news. And I think what you meant is like, um, we were talking about like the news and I think probably the subtext is like politics, religion, division of peoples, but like we are more than like this news. We are more than these like structures. I could have even been a typo. I think oh, what I was trying to say is maybe I typed we are, it wrong. we are more than our views. Uh. I think, well, I think um, it means the but same it works. Thing. It does yeah, mean it works the same thing. No, it thing. totally works. Um, Um, but my question is like, do you have theories about, this is such a leading question, but whatever, (laughs) who cares? John, again, like John Murphy, like 
rest in peace. And like, what a loss to our community. Do you, did you know John? I never got to hang out with John. What a cool guy. Um, it's really like, I'm, I'm genuinely sad that he's not like continuing to create work mm-hmm. and make waves like in jazz academia. Wow. I think you would have loved him. He's like, I don't anyway. Um, but he would be disappointed in me asking this question this way. as like an Perfect. interviewer. He would be like, Emily, that's a leading question. Um, but do you have theories about the ways in which art is related to these things? Like, I think what I'm trying to say is I think increasingly, I believe that art is some kind of an antidote to like the idea that we are our views. Oh, yes. What do you think? (laughs) Or like, what does Art art have to do with it? Okay. So my, there's a Vietnamese author named Thich Nhat Hanh, um, who I love. And he just, he passed away, I think just in January um, of this year. And he talks about, he uses the analogy of the water and the wave. So that the wave, so if we're thinking of the art if we're thinking of views of presenting our views in our art. Yeah. Um, and we have Cooper here. My, this is my Andrew's mom's dog. Oh, and he's just here. I haven't met Cooper before. He wasn't here when you got here. He's just <laughs> arriving. That's awesome. Here he is. And um, we joke that he's, he's bear, he's bears uncle and he's my brother-in-law. <laughs> he's Andrew's mom's dog. That's amazing. Oh, Hey Cooper. He's just a tiny little guy, but that's, he yeah he is up in the hierarchy of the family. Well, that's what surprised <laughs> me. I'm, I'm I'm expecting bear, and in walks little teeny Cooper. Yeah, he's little Cooper. So sorry, I'm trying please to put start together. over because no, I was yeah. totally distracted by Cooper. So um, anyways, so we're talking we're talking about the idea that we're more than our views. Yes, and and I think that's for me is a really important, really important. Um, not just an idea, but an experience to realize that there's the, that the talking mind, sure. It's a, it's there. It's a, it's a part of us, but it's, but we're so much more than that as humans. And, um, and I see my perception is that a lot of the hurt that I've experienced has come from believing that I am that. And, and if we're to bring it into this podcast completely, a lot of the things that have limited me as a creative artist have come from believing that, that I am my thoughts, that I am my views mm. that don't root me in experiences that are more expansive and connected than that separateness mm. of my thoughts. Yeah. Um, and so what I love about, I was talking about Thich Nhat Hanh writing about talking about the water and the wave. And what I love about the way he writes about that is you can't get to the water without touching a wave. Mm, mm-hmm, so the specifics mm. of our lives aren't separate from the big stuff. They're made of it. Right. So there's a way. So you, if you touch the wave, you touched the water. Right. But the important thing to understand is 
it's not separate. Right. It's the big not, stuff and the little stuff. Yeah. The like my separate views um actually aren't separate. Like who my views, my experiences, who I am, really everything. Nothing the, the heart of his writing is that everything inter is. There's nothing that is truly separate. Like the analogy he uses is if you have a flower and you remove the sunlight from the flower it will no longer be that flower, yeah. right? If you remove the water or the earth or like even the time that it, right? Like if you remove any of those elements, it's not that flower anymore. So the idea is that, that, that he, I think he writes so beautifully about this is that um, everything, every self is made of, of non-self elements. So right, the right. flower is made entirely of non-flower elements. The tree is made entirely of non-tree elements. And that opened a door to me to think about music and art and the creative process that felt so relaxing and liberating. Tell me more. Well, instead of it being like an individualistic striving against the, yeah. you know, all this, it was like, if we take, if I take any of these art forms that I love, if I take jazz, jazz is made entirely of non-jazz elements. My creative voice is made entirely of non-me elements, and you start to recognize the connectivity, um, like at a at a profound level, like just the the interconnection of it. It's just, I mean, it's, which, it's overwhelming a little bit. It's overwhelming <laughs> yeah. to think about, but it's so wonderful to. It t- for me, it, it freed me up away from feeling the pressure of honing an individual voice, which I think is how it gets. I think that's actually been co-opted in our culture where it's like your, your own voice. You got to work for it. It's like, no, you don't. How could you not sound like you? you but you do need to plant yourself in rich soil. Well, you he- need to surround yourself by elements that are going to allow this yeah. thing to grow That's on its so own. True. And so that, so when I say we're not, when I was writing about that, like we're more than our views, I was writing that honestly from the perspective of a concerned parent looking at the world my kids are stepping into. Yeah. Um, because I think that the heart of the division that we're experiencing as a society right now is that people believing like fully believing that they are their views and that there's nothing deeper than that. And therefore if someone presents an opposing of you, you perceive to be opposing, then they are, they are against. Right. And so that's, it's the basic mechanism for us and them. And so to get back to your question about whether I have theories about that for me, when I'm, when I'm performing, I'm intentionally, um, cultivating a space for community where we have a shared experience that is deeper than views. That's all it so is. So that's right? all it is. That's so the whole point. That is the whole point. That's so it's, I, and music is one of the last, sorry, Cooper. Sorry, Cooper. He's a little skittish. Mu- music is one of the last spaces that hasn't entirely been taken over by that sense into my perception. Um, I think there are pockets of it around. There totally are. Yeah. And, and I think that people are just thirsty for that kind of connection. So when I, yeah, like I, I played a jazz, I played the Eagle jazz festival this year and I, and I, and I sang Mr. Rogers, like, and I am not a singer. So I'm like, but that's what I, 
And, the, and my goodness, the people just, they were so thirsty to hear someone get up and say, we're going to experience joy together. Mm-hmm. And actually what I said was we're going to experience joy as an act of, of resistance. Yeah. Right? Because in the face of all this stuff going on, we're going to remind ourselves that we're human yeah, and that yeah. we share this. So, so yeah, I do, for me, that is actually what it's about. And maybe that is kind of the point, the heart of your question about medium is it's really, the medium is in it's fact, about people, people, it's about human connection. That's what it feels like to me. Like art is again, it's like one of these wormholes. It's like a, it's a translator. Like Art is a is a me, is a means of translating one paradigm to another paradigm, one language to another language, one experience to another experience. It's it's where the Venn diagram happens between an us and a them, or between a this and a that. It certainly can be. Yeah, I feel like it can be catalyzed either way. Art is sort of like yeah. it. It in and of itself simply is, but we can catalyze it towards division or connection. I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. And I'm certainly interested in catalyzing it toward connection. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. feels, it feel, and, and also like not in a grandiose way, right? Like not in a, well, it's, it's literally like, here's my little drop in the bucket. I totally. happen to be a teacher. I happen to be someone who can perform places to groups of like I'm a jazz musician. These are very small audiences we're talking well, about, but that little drop in the bucket, if everybody's cultivating their little communities that way, yes, it'll do what needs that's to happen. That's why I wrote the hallowed wide, you know, like, and that's why for me, it's like, it's my students, but it's also that efficient. And it's also this cashier. And it's also, <laughs> it's just like, whatever it is like, and I'm not perfect about it. You know, I don't always have the bandwidth. I don't always see the answer. Like, I don't always see it. Yeah. I can't always see what that pathway is. I can't always like find that Venn diagram or mm-hmm. like, you know, but I, that's, I'm, I'm pretty clear that that's what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty clear with myself that that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Um, and that feels way more interesting to me than any nodes, m- m- nodes. I was going to say notes or modes. <laughs> and then I just said nodes that feels more interesting to me than any music specific things. Totally. Like it feels way more interesting oh to me. Oh my goodness. Yes. Like, and Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's um Holly and I were talking about uh this in the there's so another one of my teachers would say um to, uh rock, his name is Rockalon Bob Moses. You should go check his music out if you're listening. Cool. Um but he um he would say there's there's just two things in music. There's the juice and the cup. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. I, did I, we talk about that? No, I wrote it down. But oh, did you? Yeah, please tell okay. me more. So so the idea is the juice is the feeling. Yeah. Right? This feeling that we're talking about is one that that allows connection, right? Yeah. And, and then there's the cup. And the cup, and he would say, it doesn't matter how basic the cup is, you can always fill it with juice. And, and, and then for us as artists, like if you're composing the hallowed wide, or if I'm, you know, it's like we do, we're trying to design cups that are the vessels that will allow the juice to be experienced in the ideal way. But in the end, it's just a cup (laughs) and the thing that matters is the juice. Yes. And I just, I think he's just so on the money with that. Yeah. I love that so much. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. That feels so intuitive. Yep. Like that feels just like 
Oh, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Which doesn't mean we don't study how to design beautiful cups right. because we want the experience of the person drinking, right? To, yeah. to, to have an experience. Yeah. But, but you don't know if like one person's person has an association with some type of cup totally that they can't get the juice in that cup <laughs> that's a great point yeah. yeah so for me it's absolutely infinitely more interesting my desert island song is is um is antonio carlos jobin's aguas Jamarso. it is like three minutes of and there are all sorts of what we might think of as mistakes in that recording and they're perfect yeah, yeah. because the thing is just so full of juice yeah. So, and that's the only, for me, that's... I think that's what I love about jazz, like the imperfection of it. I think that's what drew me to it in the first place. Like there's an there's an imperfection in, in inherent in anything improvised and inherent in anything not, I guess. Well, totally. But, that's but the classical music I want to listen to too, is the ones where they're taking the risks that... Yeah. And that I think that, that was the thing that spoke to me as a teenager I told you this story in our mm-hmm. first interview, but like just yeah. going to Barnes and Noble with reckless abandon and mm-hmm. picking up kind of blue, you know, thank my lucky stars. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think it was that kind of imperfection, that sense of like, we're not sure what we're doing, but we're doing something. Um, and I didn't find as much of that in my degree, in my education as I thought I would. Absolutely. And that is a huge question to me. It's like, cause for me, I was, just, I don't know if I was just lucky, but my mentors did bring that mm, my, and cool. in academia, I experienced like people who connected me to that magic. Wow. And so I know it's possible. Yeah. I'm, I am feeling concerned about the level of resistance to that, that I see around me regularly. Um, and, yeah. but then the flip side of it is like, well, just going to show up and yeah. what if I taught the way that I thought it needed to be taught? I think you better, so. you know, but it's, so. I think it is again, this idea of like some models, like there, we just have models. Like we need some models or things are just too confusing. Like we sure. need some frameworks. We need some, you know, and the framework that we're in is like an academic institution or the framework we're in is a band or the framework we're in is a wedding, you know, like, whatever it is, the Mm -hmm. framework we're in is a grocery store, you know, but yeah, just like, I'm really interested lately in like looking for those cracks. Like just where are those little cracks where we can like play, you know, experiment, like try something new. And I also think like, it's easy to be disarming when you're authentic. It's easy to be disarming when you like have genuine care it doesn't always work because some people are too scared. Like I know that there was a time in my life where I was too scared to like, um, open myself to care because you know, something that's open is open in both directions. And I wasn't ready to, I couldn't let someone care about me because then I'd have to care about myself. And then Mm. I would have to think differently about my parents. And you know, it just, it was a Pandora's box that I didn't, I wasn't stable enough to open it. Yeah. So I try to think about that too. Like when I have a student that's really, really resistant, even to my very best attempts at love or a colleague, you know, or a bandmate or someone I'm hiring in the band, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, whoever it is. 
a family member, you know, a neighbor, anybody, when I, when I feel like people are just resistant to that type of like genuine love, I try to remind myself like, this isn't about me. Like they, they, they might not, they might really just not be capable at this current juncture, you know, totally. You can just let that go for reals. And I do think, I mean, that is the, that is really hard for me too, but, but I'm, I am learning more and more. Like I have genuine care for the people that I have the opportunity to teach and I genuinely want them to grow. And I genuinely am learning that that's their business. Yeah. They are, they are the ones that are going to have to, Bobby Shu said it to me like this. And when, um, once he said, uh, he said, I can lead a horse to the water hole. I can walk them around the water hole so many times that they get exhausted and the collapse next to the water. I can push their nose next to the water, but in the end they have to drink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the horse has to take the drink. Yeah. And I think that's there's a lot in that little analogy. Yeah. Lots that, of grace there for yourself too. Like totally. Because it's easy to take it as a failure if the horse doesn't drink. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. easy to think like I did something wrong. Yeah. Is there anything else you feel like you want to talk about? Like anything else that's on your mind? Anything else you want to like spar at a little together? Oh man. Not necessarily. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to come and hang out. It's been yeah, a long time. It has. I'm glad that your season is calming down and I, yeah, I just, I, I really love that there's a space for conversations like this to happen. And I, yeah. And I mean, I, what would I like to, I just would love community spaces that can do this. Yeah. So I guess here's a little one if there. If there are people who are listening to this, who feel drawn to any of these themes I guess I would say the other, actually I do have one other thing, which is that what I've not necessarily to talk about per se, but just to put out there, I'm really interested in learning about the nature of trauma right now and in learning to develop teaching modalities that are trauma aware and body informed. Mm. And it's sort of becoming it's a really important direction for me right now. So I'm reading yeah. everything I can about it and I'm doing my own work with people. And, um, so if there are artists out there, cause I know that most of us artists have experienced firsthand the way that this can be healing for us, particularly yeah. as it relates to personal trauma. Yeah. So the question for me that just is almost all consuming right now is how do we convert that into modalities that can be created and shared and nurtured in a social response to the pandemic. I'm looking at my own children and then my friend's children and just young people, our college students, what we just went through together is messing with them and our response is inadequate. Yeah. And so in terms of the drop in the bucket idea, I feel like there's a way there has to be a way to design musical experiences for non-musicians in classrooms that actually give kids and young adults the tools to move, to allow traumatic experience to move through them and for them to feel like they have choice in their lives again. So I'm really interested in that. Oh, that reminds me. 
choice. You were saying something. I have it written down here. I'm, yeah. I'm so I'm going to look at this later and be like, why didn't I ask Ryan about that? <laughs> I typed it. I wrote it down. But I so love this idea of like the students have to be making choices. And that is so hard to teach. It's so hard. Why is it so hard to teach? Like, just let's talk about that for just a minute. I think it's hard to incorporate choice because there are so few models that do it. So Mm -hmm. virtually all of us came through a kind of training that was built almost entirely on rote memory. All of our training. And the idea is that if you're, if you're a creative, that, that eventually all that rote memory practice will simply become creative artistry, which again is a, it is a methodology, it's a pedagogy that was built to reinforce the hierarchy of the teacher, like their sense of expertise, right? So this, again, I owe that idea to my mentor, John McNeil. What started our book project together was when I went to him and I asked him, because I noticed his teaching was so different. I said, what? I said, John, we got to talk about teaching. And he said, oh yeah, teaching's easy. <laughs> I was like, what? Come again? Well, sir? Come again, sir? Yeah, exactly. And he said, well, yeah. He said, because everybody learns the same way. And already I'm like, that no, is the opposite don't. of everything yeah. I've ever been taught. He yeah. said, no, everybody learns by exposure and repetition. And I said, okay, let's say I'm willing to accept that. How do you get your students to engage repetition creatively? Yeah. And he just says, like, it's nothing. Oh, that's easy. You just got to make sure they're making choices all the time while they practice. And that turned my world upside down. I had never, or at least I hadn't, maybe someone had tried to offer that to me before and I just wasn't hearing it. But that to me was like a... I still feel like it's really hard to teach. Giant light bulb. So, but... It's hard for me to teach. Our book hopefully will begin a lot of conversations about that. I cannot wait to read it. And it's, but it really is to me, it's as simple as saying, here's one option, here's another option go back and forth at randomly between them. Mm, yeah. Like if you're going to practice a scale, if you're learning your thirds in a scale, yeah. then you can either go up the third, do, me, or you can go down the third, me, do, which one are you going to do? Yeah. And to have the student literally... Just a little bit of present. teeniest choices. Yeah. If they are, then it starts wiring the brain for fluency instead of for rote memory. Yeah, yeah. And fluency means freedom. And freedom to me is one of those core values that we're actually trying to get these ourselves and our students to. The freedom yeah. to move one direction or another depending on what's happening around you. It's so cool. So, but it starts at the simplest syntax. Here's one option. Here's another choose. Do you get feeling like insecure about trying to engage in this way with your students? Like, do you feel insecure, like as an academic, like why does it feel difficult for you? Oh, to teach this way or to, to be this way? Like, yeah, I mean, (laughs) like I'm Hmm. wondering, like, I think I'm just, I think I'm wondering where, like where you are, like as an artist, like what are the puzzles that you're trying to solve like less as a teacher and more like just as a person or are they one in the same? Let me sit with that for a second. Yeah. That's a big one. (laughs) Yeah. So you're asking, I think what I'm trying to do is give you permission to just like broach any subjects that you feel like you're thinking about. Well, the choice idea plugs into the trauma thing. Mm. Um, 
That's why we got to it because you were talking about yeah. trauma. So the the choice. So one of the things that's been consistent, and I am so not a trauma expert, so, but the the people who I have had a chance to read now are a Jungian trauma expert named Donald Kalshed, um, a somatic therapist named Peter Levine. Um, I'm reading this Gabor Mate book now, um, and and also Bessel van der Kolk's, and then Bruce Perry. So I've read like five different trauma experts who have their own lenses for yeah. approaching it. Their own modalities. Uh, their own modalities, but guess what they all have in common? What? Movement, as in choice. Yeah. Like that people in order, so like one of the stories that really hit me is Besser van der Kolk writes about, he was brought in in a, like a hurricane response team for an area that had been hit by a hurricane. And initially the people were all just helping each other. They were moving, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then like the officials came in and said, no more helping each other. You might be doing it wrong. Oh my God. And the second they did, Bessel van der Kolk goes and says, I'm going to need like 10 more therapists now. Yeah. Because you've stopped them from having the option of moving. Yeah. And and that's just crucial. And the way this Peter Levine talks about this is so fascinating to me. Is that the uh, his, his, what are his books called? His his is called, let's see, Peter Levine's is called. Is he the one who like was in academia mm, and then went and lived in Mexico for like a year? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I'm uh it doesn't matter. I'm just I'll have I'm to trying look it to up. remember if up, this is the same, if like I've read this book. Okay. It's but a, I, I don't know. His, his thing is the trauma as it's stored in the body is like an incompleted survival movement. The body keeps the score? Uh, that's Bessel van der Kolk. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Peter Levine's is, I can't, I can't remember the title now. Okay. I'm we'll sorry. think of it later. Um, anyways. Um, but his idea is that, that it actually gets stored in our bodies. Yeah. And the way he gets a path to healing with his clients is by having them complete the movement on a deep level that was impeded by the trauma. Hmm. So like, like physiological one physiological movement, movement wow. that it's stored in the body. And so like one of the examples he used was a woman who was attacked on the street and she actually got away safely. But he noticed while she was talking with him about it, that she kept throwing her elbows back, like her mm -hmm. body gestures were throwing. And so he, he asked her if he, if she, if he could have permission to just put one of his hands behind her elbow and let her push like, and basically it was the, res like when she was grabbed from behind her survival response was to elbow the attacker, mm -hmm. but she was unable to, even though she did escape. That's so interesting. It, and, but by having her finish, by having her complete that deep movement, mm -hmm. it like totally unlocked her healing. It's very like EMDR. It's very connected. Yes. All yeah. of this stuff is connected and that's what, so this idea of movement and choice being central that's the thing about choice that has that I'm so interested in and that I'm seeing is that that is going to be a central component of a trauma aware mm -hmm. classroom, but our modalities are not rooted in not choice. Yeah. If we go and run an ensemble, we tell people what to do. If we go and teach a class on anything, it's like we we are we just we haven't caught up to have teaching methods that are rooted in choice. That's so interesting because I feel like. The classes that I'm teaching are all about choice. Well, yours are. You're teaching songwriting. And, yeah. yeah. And, and I teach pickup band, which mm -hmm. is like, how are you going to adapt this? And I think that's 
like from this trauma lens, I think that's going to end up being incredibly important. I hope so. Something that feels meaningful to you. Oh, it feels. But I talk to Holly about it all the time. As an artist, she's she's like, why do you? Why do musicians not? Because in the art land, they're creating new stuff all the time. Yeah. It's like, why don't you guys do that? I think you're and right. And I'm like, it's that's like a, a legit scarcity. question. <laughs> it's, it, we're so scared. I mean, it's, well, I think like even just, even just watching the divide between like academic jazz and academic classical music, there's a clue there. Like, it, I think it's something like we all are so worried that we've chosen the wrong thing and we want to like solidify our thing as the thing as if, as a, as a protection, as if to say like, but if you can do this thing, this is the thing that matters. This is the thing that will last. These sharp nines are the thing that makes this, that makes this remain viable, that will make you hireable. And it's like, you know, the people who've made those choices, like trying so hard to solidify those choices as the best choices in order to justify their choices and continue to make a sustainable world for a person who's made those choices. That's what it feels like to me. I also think it's rooted in the history of needing to justify the supremacy of written culture over oral culture. Mm. So, so, and, uh, and the, 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 what's the word? It's sad. It's unfortunate that, that, that traditions rooted in oral culture, like pop music or jazz or right, that they have, conceded to that power structure and oh, have totally. and have tried out of desperation to be validated by, by. a system built f- in order to va- to to um, hierarchically um, fix written yes. culture as supreme that is this what i thought you were talking about with centering mm. like pop music centers itself in classical music as if to say like let me be part of you you know, or something like that. Maybe yes. that's a little bit too. No, it's but like, bring me into the concert hall. We yes. would like to be seen as legitimate. Yes. As opposed to like, actually there are these beautiful ritual spaces that have yeah. been created in other venues. That is where this is meant to be shared. Yes. It's, I'm so, yeah. I'm so interested in that. And even just like in these very small ways, like I center myself in a certain way sometimes, or rather center other people, um, as, like as a childless person. Like I find myself deferring to people who have kids Hmm. in certain ways, instead of saying like, here's what's really beautiful, unique about my experience. And here's like, like you had said, relishing our role. That's something that I've been thinking about so much lately. Like, Mm -hmm. I think I have an intuition somewhere in my body that like being childless for me means that I have like some freedom in a different way than Mm -hmm. people who have children do. And that feels precious to me. Like what that means is that I can be like an aunt in a different way to my Mm -hmm. nieces and nephews than, than an aunt or an uncle who has children can be. I can be a different type of a friend to my friends because I don't have this very sacred obligation to my kids. Sure. Um, 
I can confirm that you have more freedom. <laughs> I, I know it. It's beautiful. And I think lots of times I feel like I need to apologize to people for it. And I need to be oh, like, wow. oh, I can't imagine what it's like. I feel like I'm not allowed to talk with people who have children sometimes about the things that are beautiful about not having kids. Cause it, it, there's, it feels like there's an insult in there and you're mm. not one of these people, but lots of people who have kids talk to me like that. Like they feel the need to talk to me. Like I'm a bit of a less person. Well, that goes into the, in some ways that actually gets to the heart of kind of where we started and maybe is a good circling bookend, but there's yeah, that, if you're, that response is coming from somebody, somebody's sense of lack. Right. Who has identified with solely this constellation of expectations given to them from the outside. Yeah. They believe those expectations are who they are. Yeah. When in fact, those expectations are probably leading to their own illness, be it physical, mental, spiritual, right? Yeah. And, and, and if maybe at the, maybe the underlying sort of aquifer to our entire conversation today mm -hmm. is the fact that that constellation is just that it's just a constellation. It's just a model. It's a, it's a, it's, it's adaptations that worked that and we can be very kind to ourselves for having embraced them or believed them maybe yeah. but in fact there's something so much deeper and that something deeper connects all of us um and it's at the same time it's unique right there is such a thing as a wave and the wave is the water right yeah. and and i think that underlying i think that's been a thread through as as sort of playful and fun and as diverse uh, directions as we've gone in our conversation today, that is definitely a theme th that, that, that runs through all of them that yeah. for all the change and for all the, whatever it is, there is in fact, this something deeper that is real and that we've encountered and that for us, our art has been a bridge to encountering that. Yes. And, um, Oh, I love it so much. I love it too. If I can just say one last thing. Please. I think like the the way that I've been thinking about this, I've been using like a specific kind of symbol or metaphor that I don't know if I'm ready to talk about because I might I want to think about it a little bit more before I talk about it. It might it might be like a little bit of a touch point for like a a new project for me. Mm. Anyway, but I'll say this. This idea of like the water and the waves, I've been thinking a lot lately about like what happens when like this wave touches like that water, you know, like what is the ripple effect? Like what is the new effect that happens when like this individual and this individual or these four individuals mm -hmm. like, you know, intersect. And then, like, I, I mean, just as like one small, small thing, my husband, Andrew, he's an artist in many ways. Yeah. He's not a professional artist, but like he, you know, he studied music mm -hmm. growing up. He started out as a jazz drums major. Mm -hmm. He still plays professionally, like in the wedding band. Um, I don't hire him that often because he's busy and he has a full-time job. But every once in a while, you know, if my other regular drummers aren't available, he'll come play. And I've been thinking a lot about like, you know, Andrew will sit in my kitchen with David Baker, Shane and Chelsea Jones, Joseph Facer, like these musicians, you know, like we're all just musicians. And then Andrew, who's a musician too, but not professionally. And like, what, what could happen if my Andrew 
takes like some of these kind of art things that he's fluent in and like takes them a little back to like Texas instruments, you mm-hmm. know, like, like, but then I'm, I wonder about all the things, you know, like, but, but what are, what are the little things that can happen if he lets that like spill out a little, like into that other space that it's not supposed to be in, you know, yeah. I don't know. That's kind of like, that's a main thing I'm thinking about lately. Oh, yes. How can we let, let our things like just spill a little yeah. into another thing? We've become so hyper-specialized as a culture. I like that's segmented. The, the way I've been thinking about that is like, I feel like this deep yearning for the return of the generalist. Yeah. Like people who are doing exactly that. And what if I, and go here and here and here and bring it all together. And I, that's what I think is those walls coming down. I know I spend a lot of time reading things that supposedly have nothing to do with music, whether it's world religion or philosophy or psychology or other like science related things and that everything. are so inspiring to me as a yeah. creative artist. And so, Yes, it's everything let's and bring it's down all the walls, please. That's how I feel. Yeah. When I asked before, like, <laughs> what is identity? You were like, Mwah. I feel like identity is complicated because it's all these little pockets. Yeah. It's like, but what if we just like took the things out of the pockets? <laughs> what if we were just like, what if I can take like the things, you know, like what if you can take the things that make you like a great father and I mean, it makes sense to like kind of apply some of those things to a student, but like, what if you apply some of those skill sets to your colleagues? You know, like, what if you like, I just am very curious, like Mm. we, we get thinking that these skill sets are like designed for one space, but what if we take like those skill sets and kind of just let them sort of, you know, well, and how, uh, how rare a thing it is to meet a human who is the same person in every setting. Right. I know two. I don't know any. That can come I'm to trying mind. to be one. Exactly. I'm really yeah, trying too. to be one. <laughs> me too. But it's really hard. And part of the reason it's hard is we don't have we don't have a we don't have a, a model for saying to your, you know, the people in the uh, in the new context, here's what I'm trying to do. Like mm. it's really hard. It takes like a lot of awareness, it takes a lot of creativity, it takes a lot of bravery, a lot of vulnerability, a lot of it's kind of messy. Like if I am trying to have a conversation with my brother who I really am like trying to build a relationship with and it's not easy, like for many reasons it's difficult and I can feel him also trying. Like I feel like we're both trying, but we're on such dramatically different pages in so many ways. And then I, I just think like I'm, I'm centering though. Like I'm centering our parents. Like, you know, maybe mm-hmm. I'm using that word wrong, but like it feels no, useful understand. to me. Yeah. Like I am trying to have a relationship with my brother in the context that our parents taught us, which is the whole problem. And what does it even look like to have a relationship with my brother that's out of that context? Yeah. I don't fucking know. And he doesn't know. And that, and so for me to try to be like, hey, Blake, this is the person that I am with my colleagues, with my friends, with my husband this is a person you've never met because every time I'm with you, I'm being a version of myself that grew in this toxic environment. Mm. And that makes me like not unlovable, but it makes me difficult and I can feel that, you know, but I don't know 
how to teach him who I am. You know, well, that's, it's hard. That's interesting. I guess I, that one does make me want to, mm. And how do I, I listen to who he is? I hear in the way that you said that, the words that you chose uh, were interesting to me because you said that makes you difficult. But I wonder if that's entirely fair. Oh, I, I wonder, know that it's not. I wonder. <laughs> it's I wonder, very unfair. I wonder if... Um, I just mean like from his perspective, I think. I, oh, I see what you're saying. And it makes but me even feel so, difficult right? like, to be in my own body. Like I feel difficult. I resonate with that yeah. so much. And I do feel like that invitation to authenticity that much that totally misused word in in so much of our culture today but still like what would it be like to show up as you what would it be like to 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 feel the feelings you have and to express those not in reactive ways but in honest ways yeah in every situation that we're in that that move towards wholeness and towards trusting that and not in in a totally non-judgmental space that's not asserting it's not centering anyone it's yeah. just saying this is my experience right now that is the that is sort of the siren call to me right now yeah um and settling into settling into like just being <laughs> which again sounds so no it's impossible it's so difficult we can't I mean, we can't put words impossible. on it but we can yeah. but we can pause and take a breath and be grateful to be hanging out with a friend and we can pause and you know really taste the coffee and really see the leaves and really see feel the sunlight and and I and I think we can do little things that get us closer to that being instead yeah. of the doing and the and the hardcore amen all that stuff. But I think that's the heart of it. I think that's where we're heading. Well, thanks for chatting. And just know I'm down the hall, and yeah. I'm a person in your community <laughs> who like welcomes all these things. Uh, I look f so I am so looking forward to the future hangs. I am too, for sure. And the future of like the future teaching, the future. Yeah. future community like yeah. i really think we can do something radical you know i think we can let's plan i think it's something it's Emily. actionable let's do it i'm already i'm doing <laughs> this is i'm doing it yeah it's happening now it's perfect because i don't have kids right <laughs> <laughs> so i can i can take a role in this that is different than you it's perfect <laughs> well thank you so much it's always a joy to talk with you i just really appreciate your brain <laughs> Likewise, Emily. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Artifice. Our theme song is As You Are from My Album Masks with artwork and merch designs by Sarah Keel. If you'd like to recommend a professional artist for an interview on the podcast, you can reach me through my website, emilymerrellmusic.com. That's E-M-I-L-Y-M-E-R-R-E-L-L-Music.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again. Have a great week.